Welcome to another episode of the Drug Classroom Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Adam from Psych Substance and Swim, two very popular YouTube channels. Psych Substance is his most well-known project. It's primarily based around drugs, and historically, psychedelics have been the primary topic, and Swim is a more personal channel. I'll include links to both channels in the description. We talk about a very wide range of topics in this episode, ranging from psychedelic harm reduction to philosophy. So this isn't purely about science, or drugs, but it was a good discussion covering a variety of areas. As always, everything the Drug Classroom does, including this podcast, is supported by donations, especially on Patreon. So if you want to help out, please consider supporting on Patreon. And you can also contribute by leaving reviews on iTunes and sharing the content. If you have any questions, you can reach me at seth at thedrugclassroom.com. So without further ado, I bring you Adam. I'm here with Adam from Psych Substance. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Seth. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So I am sure the majority of people who are listening probably know about Psych Substance, about you, but can you just give a brief overview of how you got into this area, what the channel is, what you do? Sure. How I got into this area. Well, it probably started by accidentally trying LSD one day. Um, I say accidentally. It wasn't really an accident, but I just did not know what I was in for which kind of just sparked this, what feels like a lifelong journey now into, well, first exploring what these substances can do to you, not just psychedelics, but basically all drugs. And yeah, I felt inspired to kind of share what I had learned and just to share my experiences with, I guess, uh, the world, you could say on YouTube, um, which quickly led to me realizing how many people out there just don't know what the fuck they are doing and how dangerous a lot of people's drug use is, how many people don't test their drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So I position myself as somebody who's uh, heavily into the harm reduction field, which, um, yeah, I feel like it's a good fit. And you didn't start using like psychedelics until later, I believe. Like when did you first actually get into using drugs other than alcohol? Uh, The very first time I used anything, well, it doesn't count because I did try salvia when I was about 16 years old, but that's just because everybody in my area tried salvia at that time. It was this like crazy legal thing that you could buy at Rock Universe, right? Yeah. So that doesn't really count. So beyond salvia, uh, I would have been 26 when some one of my friends who was heavily into the EDM scene finally talked me into trying MDMA, which I was heavily against. I was, I'm probably the last person that you would expect uh, would be <laughs> talking about drugs for a living, because I was the kind of guy who would talk people out of taking MDMA. And what was the reason for that? Like, what did you actually believe about MDMA? I I believed exactly what the D.A.R.E. program would have told me. I believed all the stigma. I was brainwashed into thinking that all of these substances had no therapeutic value. They were just addictive, harmful things for society. And I was just completely, merrily happy with my alcohol, which I definitely abused uh, when I was younger. I self-medicated with alcohol. So I thought, anyone who used drugs must have been like out of their mind. Like, why would you first of all put your body at risk like that? And why would you put your, you know, freedom at risk like that when you can just go to the store and buy 
some awesome stuff, you know, illegal drug like alcohol, which for me was all I thought I needed. Alcohol seems like a complicated topic in the, the psychedelic community. Uh, even though you've obviously moved beyond just using alcohol, what are your actual stances on like, have you moved entirely to just I hate alcohol? Or are you uh, more reasonable with your your stance? Well, a lot of people who have watched my content seem to think that I have this vendetta against alcohol that, that I hate the substance, which has quite honestly, never, ever been the case. That's never been my stance. The reason why I, I come across as hating alcohol is simply because I hate what society thinks of alcohol. I, I hate how it's been glamorized and how people, particularly younger people, don't seem to view it as a drug. Well, hell, not younger. Everybody. Older people, too. They're just, they're not taught that alcohol is just as much of a drug as cocaine is. Um, so, from that stance, I think alcohol is fine. I have a drink now and then. I'm not interested in getting drunk. I don't find being like blackout drunk or even just overly tipsy to be particularly enjoyable anymore. I do find one drink or two drinks enjoyable because I like just the calm, relaxed state that it can put you in. Um, so I see alcohol just like any other drug. It's fine as long as you use it in moderation and you don't go overboard and abuse the shit out of it, which again leads me to the problem with society because they kind of glamorize the going overboard. It's seen as like uh, something to, to aspire to do, especially in certain drinking cultures that I've lived in. They would quite literally be drinking at work. I worked at a bank in New Zealand and Friday, 4.30 would come along. Someone would sound an air horn and everyone would get super excited, run to the fridge and grab their beers and finish their day of work with a few beers in them. It was just the norm. Which is so different from how you see, say, Italy or some other place using alcohol. Like it's, it, it is interesting how you have a drug so integrated into society in the sense of being popular, and yet it has actually no real cultural integration. So people just immediately seem to go towards abusing it and using it at high doses regularly. Binge drinking is incredibly common, especially among young people. And it's interesting how you can end up in a situation where where a drug becomes popular to the point of, you know, 70 or 80% of people using it. And yet nobody has ever really been self reflective and actually thought about it being a psychoactive substance with harms and benefits and and they're dose dependent. The amount that people actually think about that is minimal compared to, say, somebody interested in LSD or or even a Adderall or something, there's more care that often seems to go into using those drugs, despite them being illegal, than for alcohol, which is always a bit fascinating how you can end up in a situation like that. Because I think from people coming from our perspective, it's hard to imagine approaching a drug and just using it without any research or consideration, but tons of people do. And I'm not sure how you can really get people to change that outside of, hopefully, educational things like what we do. No, I, I'm totally on board with what you're saying. Um, well, one way that people can change that is when you really hammer into them and get them, you know, you have to relate to them in the way, in a way they understand it, that alcohol is in fact a drug and being a drug, it has side effects and harms just as any other drug does. And that was huge for me. When I finally accepted that alcohol was a drug, 
I realized just how much of a hypocrite I was being, uh, you know, seeing all these other substances as just dangerous when I am just completely okay putting myself to the levels of being blackout drunk, uh, arguably entering alcohol poisoning territory. When I was younger, I'd do that probably every weekend. And I was just like, wow, I have been so stupid. And just not enough people have woken up to that fact, which I think also plays into why people think I hate alcohol, because I talk about it a lot, right? Not recently, but in the first year I started making videos, it was particularly an interesting topic for me um, because I just wanted to show people, well, I thought if people understood that alcohol was a drug the same way I did, that they'd make the same transition with their thinking as I made, which would kind of help destroy this drug stigma. Um, it's just so fascinating that we have a culture that's been built upon like alcohol. It's so integrated into everything that well people do in the Western world. Like it is seen as the one uh, substance they can use to escape and it's just socially acceptable to drink you can you know drink at a fancy restaurant and all of society is basically just behaving like hypocrites and they just don't even know it so most people know you for talking about dmt and psychedelics in general but you don't actually have a anti other drug kind of view so do you think in both personally and for just drugs overall are psychedelics and dmt sort of special for you do you, do you think they have unique useful qualities that separate them from other why substances? are you separating dmt from psychedelics particularly. I think a lot of people associate you with DMT more than other psychedelics. I guess that probably would be one of the drugs I've spoken the most about, if not the substance I've spoken the most about. So I can understand that. So because people really know you for that, but your personal views are clearly not anti non psychedelics, are psychedelics, including DMT, playing a specific positive or otherwise role in your life? And do you think they have some really specific quality that makes them distinct from, say, the recreational use of cocaine or amphetamine or opioids? Because you don't seem opposed to the other drugs, but they clearly dominate what you're thinking about at any given time more than, you know, you're not thinking about heroin as much as uh, psilocybin or DMT. I, I can see why you would think that. It's not necessarily true though, because I recently, I really don't partake in psychedelics at all. They haven't taken up a whole lot of my thoughts besides when I'm researching different drugs to make videos on. In recent times, I've really opened up and started to just explore both with my channel and just in my personal life, a lot of these other substances. And I've been trying to find other ones that I do believe have some potential for healing or for productivity. And, and I've recently stopped looking down on, say, things like opioids or amphetamines. Um, I really went through like a, some kind of a growth. I don't know. I matured a bit in my, in my drug knowledge. I realized that I was being the kind of hypocrite that I was talking about earlier with alcoholics. I was saying, hey, look, psychedelics are great. They have very little harm potential. I mean, no one's ever died from smoking DMT or taking LSD or eating mushrooms, that means these drugs are better than others. But um, I believe the reason why psychedelics will probably always hold just such an important place uh, for me is just because they have such a unique ability for healing. They, they just allow a person to kind of step outside of their everyday way of thinking and examine their life or problems in their life from an angle that they just previously could never reach. And very well, I don't think any other drugs can allow for that type of therapeutic value. They, they don't allow for that type of growth. I think psychedelics are probably one of the few tools that we have that kind of behave like therapy for a lot of people. It's like you are your own therapist. You get to have an intimate conversation with your subconscious mind. Uh, there's just something so unique about that that just isn't 
isn't present with, say, something like amphetamine or opioids. And I do agree. I think those are are legitimate, unique qualities for, for psychedelics and for MDMA especially. And once you get outside of that, it becomes a little less introspective and you're not likely to have too many revelations about yourself because of other substances. The thing that tends to concern me, especially when it comes to young people, is they do hear about the benefits of psychedelics and the way in which it might be able to improve their life and give them insight or alleviate anxiety or depression or things of that sort. So I even get emails from people who are probably 15 to 17 and are sort of asking for a guide to receive that benefit as though you can sort of guarantee it and it's possible uh, or reliable that psychedelics cause these kinds of benefits. But at the same time, I have concerns about the sort of mentality that goes into psychedelics because they think they're going to do these wonderful things. You know, how do you approach that kind of situation where people, you know, it is definitely the case that psychedelics can do these things, but some people are so enthusiastic about trying them for that reason that I wonder if they could actually end up hurting themselves well, there's that. And then there's the fact that some people do them and it's a way of rationalizing it as being okay. They think, oh, you know, LSD is just therapeutic. I'm using these for personal growth. And that's a great rationalization when the truth is you just really want to get fucked up. Yeah. And there's also often some misunderstandings about how powerful psychedelics can be. I notice one of the most common things is just underestimating what a, a high dose or even sometimes a common dose is capable of because there's so much focus on the perceptual effects and not as much on the, the psychological effects. And people have a hard time, it seems, internalizing the state they could end up putting themselves into. It's not necessarily a negative negative state. But if you have a 16 year old who doesn't really know what they're doing, and they think it's just going to be fun, and then they are suddenly convinced that, you know, an example from my, uh, my own life convinced that time has stopped and you're dead or something like that, some some incredibly confused state, people often don't really realize that psychedelics are capable of such things. So they, they carelessly approach them and think that didn't happen at 100 micrograms. So I can take 500. And I'm just going to have right. even cooler, right. geometric patterns. Meanwhile, their brain could start totally malfunctioning in terms of thinking rationally. Totally agree with you. I This is a huge focus that I have, especially uh, after the first year I started making videos, I started to see exactly what you're saying. I saw the comments from younger people asking about it. Uh, I realized that, well, I've always known that you can't really program. I mean, some people would argue that you can program what kind of experience you're going to get out of it, but it's difficult. I don't have the answers for like, say, follow these steps to 100% of the time, have an enlightening experience. I mean, there's just so many factors involved with like, you know, classically your set and setting. The type of person you are going into it is just going to be huge. And specifically where you are in your life at that time, or even just what you were thinking about that day. Uh, I see a lot of danger as well in people using these substances, thinking that just, you know, because they're physically safe, that it also means that they're going to be mentally safe. And also, I have a lot of qualms with young people taking these drugs. I've said many times before that I strongly believe you should only explore psychedelics once your brain has fully developed or at the very least once you are the type of person who can make rational decisions, you know, someone who's not completely based off of impulses. And I do see a lot of people who 
who at least talk about psychedelics or who claim to use them, who are very impulsive and who are definitely on the road to getting hurt if they continue using them with, I guess, all that I can say is a lack of respect. And I can say from personal experience that that does seem to be a major issue. I mean, I think there are sort of two things when it comes to age. You know, one is sort of questions about whether it's going to be more dangerous. And I'm not totally convinced that's the case. But the other side of it is the impulsiveness that can go into using drugs. Obviously, you can, you can be 35 and be impulsive. But overall, you know, even from my personal experience, the way I approached thinking about psychedelics and my desire to use them, which was in no way tempered by a reasonable stance about creating a good set and setting, I just wanted to use them, is incredibly common among people. And getting young people to also internalize the reasons for why they would want to adjust their way of using psychedelics seems way harder than for other people. So you have instances where it's so dependent on individual psychology and also the culture, because we have examples of, say, ayahuasca is being used by 12-year-olds in, in Brazil, and yet on average, if you have a 13-year-old experimenting with LSD in America, it's going to be totally different for the way that it impacts them. And getting people to actually understand that seems seems difficult because it is the case that you just have, you know, I was just talking about this recently on The Drug Classroom. You have an instance where all of the desire, impulse parts of the brain are totally functioning, but your ability to actually think and make wise decisions is not there. And that's why it, it's always so difficult when I see people who are young and interested in drugs, you know, how to even approach that topic because I want them to be safe, which is why I don't tend to say, you know, don't use it because I know if I just say don't use it, then they're probably just going to use it however they were going to initially. So I try to nudge people in the direction of a safer kind of use, but it seems like such a, an uphill battle. Dude, welcome to my videos. What do you think I try to do with the harm reduction? Very, th this is what I try to do. I, I try to explain to people uh, things like, hey, just because you can handle 100 doesn't mean you can handle 500. And I also recently have been trying to speak a lot to people who think that they are, you know, some kind of psychedelic warrior that nothing can hurt them. And this is why I think my own personal experiences are so powerful, even though initially I was really against sharing too much personal information. Like, for example, all the trip reports I've done, I didn't necessarily want to talk about that stuff. But I think it is really impactful when people can see someone like me who had all this experience with them. Um, about eight months ago or so, I had uh, what I called the worst trip of my life. Like, it really doesn't matter your experience levels. These are substances that at any point, they really can just pull you into a nightmare. And some people just never heal from those experiences. It gives them anxiety for the rest of their life. And I think especially young people don't particularly understand that. They, they just, they don't see it. I love all the research that is taking place, but that is one of the downsides is that people, they base psychedelic safety on whatever happened in a Johns Hopkins study or something like that. You know, hey, look, none of them had trouble. They had mystical experiences and they're doing fine today. In fact, they're doing better than before. So that's proof that psychedelics are not going to be but harmful. They're in, a, they're in a study, like they're in a specific situation where they have therapists there. These are people who mentally prepared for probably weeks, maybe months before before this experience. These, these are people, even in some of the John Hopkins studies, uh, like the near-death study, these are people who are on their deathbed. Like you can't take 
a study from people who are already going to die and talking about how they love life so much more and apply it to a healthy young adult. So I know that, you know, same as you were saying, just telling someone who's young, you can't, you shouldn't do it, isn't going to stop them. It's the same as any drug. Psychedelics are no different. If they really want to, they're going to try it, which is why I understand that as well. Um, That's why I heavily focus on explaining to people, if you are going to do it, how to take these substances in the most beneficial or, you know, the way that's going to reduce the most amount of harm possible. And one of those is really just ensuring that you are just taking average doses and that people really understand that, you know, taking 100 micrograms of LSD versus 200 doesn't mean that it's going to be twice as intense. It could, I don't really know how the potency necessarily goes up to you. For like LSD? Yeah, it's not linear. It's not linear at all. And people think, like you were saying, that if you can handle 100, you can handle 500. So I really try to explain to people why that's not the case. And if they take my advice to heart, then hopefully... Uh, we can stop people from taking crazy doses. Um, But I also really like showing people that the really only way to ensure that you are going to get something positive out of your trip is to accept beforehand that, hey, it might not be good. Hey, I might have a bad experience. Kind of the mindset of going into it um, without expectations and feeling like you're going to be okay no matter what the outcome is. I know it's easier said than done, but I think that is very important to take into consideration before you, well, decide to take a psychedelic. Are you ready to accept that it might not be fun? Are you ready to accept that you might have to sit there and endure some painful, terrifying thoughts for a few hours? And if you're not ready to endure that type of, it almost feels like sometimes psychological torture, then don't even try it. Because if you just take them with the intent or with the expectation, it's going to be a fun, enlightening time when they are clearly capable of producing a very large range of experiences, which are very random. It's very difficult to program a trip to always be good. I don't think it's possible. Unlike, say, you take something like, um, I don't know, you drink alcohol, you know, it's going to make you feel relaxed. You don't always know what psychedelics are going to bring. Um, I think more people just need to accept that, hey, whatever the outcome is going to be, I'm going to handle it and otherwise not take it. But hey, even that is probably asking a lot, a lot out of people. Most people won't do that. They'll just kind of hope, like cross their fingers, knock on wood, this is going to be a fun experience. And if not, then I'll just handle that when I get there. And that is just the worst mentality if you want to explore these substances that you can have. Outside of dose, and I definitely agree that common doses are often, it's the only category of drug where common doses are looked at as sort of a weak thing to do. You know, 125 micrograms of LSD, yeah, that's, bro, that's just not, that's silly. High you know, all my friends are taking, you know, 350 or something, uh, and, and you haven't really experienced LSD otherwise. But outside of dose, what other factors do you think are important when it comes to, say, your actual setting, the people you're around? You know, a lot of people don't seem to put too much effort into making sure their setting is, is good. In the case of young people, I've had multiple people legitimately ask, should I at 10 p.m. take this in my room and my parents are in the house. No, that's a that's a really bad idea. Um, I can even say from personal experience, it's a bad idea. So, you know, what other factors should people try to control if possible? Well, clearly don't take LSD if you live with your parents and it's 10 p.m. at night and they're against drugs and you don't want anyone to know you're tripping. Uh, that, that's definitely something to avoid. But in terms of what you can control, just that you can control who you're with. So make sure that you're with people that you intimately trust. Some of the mistakes that I made 
I made this mistakes too many times, you think I would have learned the first time, is do not take psychedelics with people that you don't know very well. I mean, when you're sober, they could seem like a great guy. They could seem caring and genuine. But if you don't have like a deep history with them, um, if you don't have, I want to say, some kind of a love for them as a person, an intimate connection, then under the influence of psychedelics, they can turn into a monster. They, they can be absolutely terrifying. I personally thought that, um, I remember being with one one dude who, I had never tripped with before, and I remember looking at him and thinking that he wanted to rape me. And meanwhile, that was definitely not the case. That was just me projecting my interpretation yeah. of how he was acting at the time. And just you can have one thought like that, like, hey, what if this guy is a rapist? I mean, it sounds silly, right? But you can just have that one thought. And in real life, in sober life, you would just dismiss it. You'd be like, okay, this is just my mind being crazy that's not the case at all. But under the influence of these drugs, all of a sudden that can just explode and expand into dark territory that you're going to have a lot of trouble climbing your way out of. So biggest thing is really be careful who you take these with and be careful when you take them. Make sure that you are in a good state of mind because they're not going to necessarily lead you into a positive direction. Like some drugs are always going to make you feel good. Psychedelics will not always make you feel good. It's going to exaggerate where you currently are. So beyond ensuring that you're in a good place and you're around good people, again, just make sure that you are emotionally prepared for whatever is going to happen. So basically, if you would not go on a flight for a vacation with somebody, you probably should not be spending a day on LSD together. Yeah, if you wouldn't go on a flight with someone, and also if this is just someone that you don't have care for, because if you do end up going in a dark place, you want to make sure that people around you are going to show you love and not criticize you or make you feel bad, because that's just going to be exaggerated and make you feel worse. Before we get into DMT entities and cool things like that, what are your thoughts when it comes to there's a lot of people who use psychedelics in like a festival or concert setting. And it always concerns me because I can see so many ways in which even a moderately altered state on psychedelics, uh, not necessarily a super high dose could be problematic. But it's also very common for people to do that. What are your thoughts on crowded and environments and I am personally surprised by how many people have a good time doing this or maybe just the ones who have a bad time aren't speaking out as much um my my personal feelings on that are to avoid it I, I I just don't get it I can understand taking MDMA at a festival or a concert just because it's going to connect you to the music it's going to make you feel connected to the performers the people you're with it's going to make you feel good it's going to give you that positive push but taking psychedelics in that environment in moderate doses, it just sounds too risky. I can see the benefit in taking a low dose, just the recreational benefit, because it's going to give you, well, something like LSD will give you a greater appreciation for the music. But once you go past a certain dose, I mean, even just in regular doses, it's just too risky. I wouldn't do it. I'd advise more people to just think twice. Uh, if you are going to, I would suggest uh, maybe 50 micrograms. But even that, uh, for somebody who has a lot of anxiety, is going to be a bad idea. Um, you probably want to make sure that you could dose alone. Like if you can't take a psychedelic by yourself and be able to work through whatever happens, definitely don't take in that environment because it's going to be 100 times worse than feeling safe in your house. You're just going to open yourself up to a, a lot of potential problems. Uh, I'm not sure why this came to mind, but that brings up the harm reduction side of having, say, benzodiazepines available. Do you think that that's a good strategy? Like, it's fairly well known, but a lot of people never have benzodiazepines on hand. Do you think most people should try to, as long as it's, it's somewhat possible to gain access to them, should try 
try to have that available? Well, I'll tell you this much. During when I first started exploring this stuff, um, I didn't even know about benzodiazepines. And I can guarantee that if I had known about them and if I didn't stick my nose up to them initially, uh, I would have avoided a lot of shitty trips, a lot of just terrifying, potentially emotionally dangerous trips. If I were to trip today, I would not trip without having those handy. And some people have this thing called the psychedelic ego where they think that makes them weak. Like they want to be the psychedelic warrior that can handle anything. I, I think that's just funny. I mean, here you are showing your ego while taking a substance that in high doses is going to destroy your ego. It is just ridiculously contradictory. Safety is more important than being able to show off. Or there's this idea that there are no bad trips at all. And, and, and that's never actually made much sense to me. There are instances where a very terrifying experience provides some sort of benefit after it's over. But there's also just times where, as far as I can tell, you're just confused for a matter of hours and having a terrible time and nothing good came from it. What do you think about this idea that there's no true bad trips, which sometimes then people connect to, you shouldn't use a benzodiazepine to stop a trip because you're, you're like cutting something off. This is a situational type of question. And there's just too many there's just too many possibilities to, to really say whether they're right or wrong in that instance um saying that oh you shouldn't take a benzo because it's gonna cut off something you could learn from is stupid because what if if you didn't have that benzo you were going to do something that you are going to regret in life like what if without the benzo you were going to attack a friend which does happen sometimes in psychedelics what if you were going to run into traffic what if you were going to go and try to kill yourself? I mean, good luck finding some some positives after you're dead. Or good luck finding positives when you're in prison because you threw like your television out a window, acted like a crazy person in public and they arrested you. It's it's just you can't say that. You can't say that. Which is why I always try to to bring up these examples that do exist of psychedelics causing really confused states. And obviously they've existed throughout history, but there was one when I was researching 25i, and obviously some people say that 25i is inherently more dangerous than LSD, and I do have some concerns about it psychologically. And in this case, a young person took 25i and he was on a college campus and he was taking it and then he started getting kind of paranoid so he went to his dorm and progressively over the night he just became more and more paranoid and really just wanted it to end so he ended up stabbing himself twice and and then he woke up and then he got to a hospital and, and he lived but those are rare experiences but the thing that I think people need to internalize is the fact that no matter how stable your normal psychological state is if you push it far enough that you could get to a point where you really don't understand what's going on and you are in this severely impaired and confused and worried state and you could do something as you were saying hurt somebody else or hurt yourself and i think that's a good argument for if you're using high doses you should probably treat them more like delirious where you have to be around somebody else to help you um, like if you're taking you know 300 400 500 micrograms on your own i think there's just so many ways that could go wrong versus 100 micrograms where you're not going to be stabbing yourself most likely. I, I definitely agree with you that you should treat them like delirians because they do put you in a delirian state when you were just that confused. And I, I think people don't realize what, exactly what you said, that just because you can handle yourself in your sober life and just because you feel calm right right before you take it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to handle the experience. Uh, 
people give themselves too much credit. Again, the, these experiences can cause your thoughts to go in ways that you just can't even imagine while you're sober. And in high doses especially, that can be dangerous. I know it's rare, someone stabbing themselves is rare, but it's probably very common that people think about it. It's just not everyone is going to act on it. One of the really interesting qualities of psychedelics, at least some psychedelics, are these entity experiences or dimension experiences. And sometimes they occur with the big ones tending to be DMT and ayahuasca orally and even psilocin. What is your take on entities? What is your take on the the jump for on both sides? Some people to fully dismiss them and say, there's no way this is anything other than a dreamlike hallucination. But then on the other side saying, we have contacted aliens. This is the same as if you know a UFO came down and came to Earth, and this was a, a true verification of the existence of other other species and entities. You know, where do you fall on that spectrum, and how do you approach the topic of of entities? Where do I fall on that spectrum? My uh, <laughs> my place on this meter has has changed over time, and sometimes. I skip between the level in which I do fall uh, from one side to the other. I'm in a constant battle in my mind uh, with, in regards to what I think about this exact topic. I would definitely say that we just really don't have enough research right now to say either way. I, I know it sounds so irrational to say that, hey, when you take this, you are meeting an alien. Like for most people, that is going to sound crazy. Most people are just going to dismiss that as, hey, you're on drugs. I mean, because let's be real here, you are on drugs. But most people also have no idea. They, they just cannot fathom what it's like to be absolutely convinced that what you're experiencing is not only more real than real, but that there is some kind of a being outside of yourself that's standing in front of you. I can understand why a lot of people really do believe that they're either meeting aliens or they're, another one is they believe they're transcending to parallel universes or different dimensions. I believe Terrence McKenna, uh, did he believe that it was different dimensions you were traveling to? I do not know enough about McKenna to know what his perspective was. I know that it seemed to change depending on the talk that he gave, because one that stands out to me is his story of giving DMT to a, I think a Buddhist monk or practitioner, and the Buddhist was saying that the state provided by DMT was sort of a transcendent, lesser light or something experience, sort of the, the max you can go before you are leaving your body. So, but he also talked about a lot of more typical entity stuff, so I'm not sure where he actually stood on, on DMT. <clears throat> right. What I find interesting is when people take these substances and say they've never heard of Terrence McKenna. Mm. And they come out of it feeling like they transcended to a different dimension or people who take it who have no preconceived notions as to what the experience is going to hold for them. And they come back saying they talk to like, I don't know, a lizard or a jester or what are the gnomes? Mm -hmm. Like, I find it absolutely fascinating just how repeatable different experiences are. I mean, it, there's definitely something going on there that we currently cannot measure because you can't really say that it's just uh, that your mind is in chaos, that the drug is just messing with you uh, and your brain just doesn't know what to do. So it's just interpreting or it's putting you in some kind of a crazy dream because these experiences are not chaotic and they often have so many similarities from person to person. And from what I understand, a lot of the time these people don't go into it with necessarily preconceived ideas of what they're going to experience. I've personally been with someone who smoked DMT who had absolutely no idea what DMT was. None, none at all. 
and their their boyfriend convinced them that they had to try it and she was already in an altered state so she smokes it and she breaks through miraculously it never happens your first time and she comes back saying that she experienced being absolutely nothing she said she can't explain it but she was nothing and because she was nothing it meant she was everything and she said she experienced eternity and yeah she had no interest in ever doing that again but you could tell that she fully believed what had just happened to her that it was real and there's a lot of instances like that so i just i, I this is a really difficult thing for me to really take a solid stance on because on one side of the scale i want to say that it's impossible to know but on the other side of the scale i have talked to these entities i have felt like i was leaving my body um, I've been convinced of this myself. So I'm going to currently say, and, and again, this changes quite frequently for me. Um, it's a constant, well, it's definitely something that I spend way too much time thinking about. <laughs> um, I think that we just really don't understand how consciousness works yet. And I think there's a lot of just subtle clues that we can just see in our everyday life. For example, have you ever experienced uh, some kind of like psychic phenomenon? Like say when you're thinking of someone and they call you, just really simple things like that. I've had a lot of things in my life, uh, lots of coincidences. I often yeah. have coincidences, which it just really blows me away. Yeah, I've had none of the the drug experiences that you're talking about because I have not used a breakthrough amount or I have used the dose technically, perhaps, but not actually had a breakthrough on DMT. But when it comes to non-drug things, yeah, I've had a, a few experiences throughout my life. And I know other people who've had had enough of those experiences that I I do immediately think it's a little bit hard to, to justify. So I, I've at least told some to every time you have these thoughts, especially precognition, write them down. So just make a record so we can actually check this later just in case. And, and I think if that happened enough for somebody, yeah, I don't know what the interpretation would be. Uh, so, and a lot of people have these experiences. So yeah, I agree. There's, there's, there's mysteries. Uh, at the very least, it suggests the brain itself is more capable of things than you would expect. Uh, like just the, uh, the ability to, in a short period of time, have complex dimension and entity type experiences suggests that our brain's capacity for creativity is vastly underestimated because having that happen in, in five minutes or something, especially when it feels longer, is impressive in and of itself. And then even, you know, outside of that, another thing that is often impressive are not necessarily DMT entities, but the supposed plant entities like Mother Ayahuasca for DMT. But but hold on, hold that thought. You're You're still coming from the angle that it is happening all inside the brain that consciousness is generated from the brain and this is what people who believe in spirituality like to argue they will say that you are tapping into a field of consciousness mm -hmm. that the brain's not generating it and they'll argue that these dmt experiences actually are not happening in your own mind they're happening um, outside of yourself yeah, and I, w I would say that I've had experiences akin to that with meditation, and as to actually how to interpret that, I'm not sure. I do think the the ultimate teaching when it comes to, say, Buddhism does tend to move in that direction. And I think if anything is going on, that seems to be the most plausible. Um, the self is an illusion, and there's a more uh, there's a more global constant for consciousness that permeates... Yes, I can... That's what I was yeah. getting at with the coincidences. It really feels like to me that my consciousness, or whatever that may be, or maybe it could even just be that our brains are just more powerful than we give them credit for. And we can actually pick up other people's thoughts on a subconscious level. 
because I have had so many experiences in my life where I felt like my thoughts were not my own, that they were being like transmitted to me from someone else. Um, or that uh, I was just really connected to someone in a way that just didn't make any logical sense. Um, and it just really, that leads me to heavily believe that either that, either our brains are more powerful than we believe, or that we are all a part of some kind of uh, a unified consciousness, that, that we really are, like you're saying, the self is an illusion. But when the self ends, then we kind of, we, I, I can't even say what happens when the self ends, but whatever this consciousness is, it definitely feels like it's a lot bigger than just my individual sense of self. And you could say that's wishful thinking. Um, but I don't know. I don't really, I don't know. Is it? I think we just don't know enough right now to definitely say, but it just, it makes you kind of question, uh, say the Western belief, uh, traditional forms of thinking when you have these experiences where it's almost like you're joined with someone else's mind. Like I've talked, we've had conversations about this before where I said, if it wasn't for the fact that during some of my DMT experiences, I, I, they were shared like uh, with my partner, um, like we experienced the same trip at the same time as if we were in each other's minds. And there's just no rational explanation for stuff like that, except for what I'm saying, that maybe we were just tapping into the universal stream of consciousness at the same time. Um, I know I sound like a hippie right now, but I kind of am. And, <laughs> and that is why we experienced the exact same thing at the exact same time, or we had just some kind of a connection um, that is just not explainable with what we currently know. Because if it wasn't for shared experiences, I would have a much harder time um, exploring these ideas. I've just had some crazy, crazy shit happen to me on these substances that just kind of goes beyond it just being a trip. Yeah, my opinion on these matters is not totally on one side. And obviously, I'm biased towards the more materialist and scientific perspective, influenced by both those experiences, my my own experiences, but also the other side of we've only spent a century now trying to pin down these abilities, Gans field experiments, uh, James Randi going through and, and debunking basically every psychic ability claim that doesn't prove necessarily that these things are not legitimate. I would just like to see more evidence for them, which is why I've often brought up in these topics that there are people who approach this in a different way. They don't immediately say these things are real. They do try to find a way within the scientific framework to investigate them. And I've seen this the most, or at least what I'm familiar with, with reincarnation, these instances of young kids, usually under five or something, who have in some cases seemingly way more knowledge about another person's life from another place than they should. And if those reports are legitimate and there was no fraud involved, and that's obviously sometimes hard to truly verify, then hey, maybe there's something going on. Well, perhaps a lot of these things are easily disproved because maybe it has something to do with the tools that we're using. Our measuring devices are just wrong. Maybe the our parameters for success or failure are just not adequate for measuring this type of phenomenon. I don't know what I'm trying to do. You know what I'm trying to say? I think the main argument that is made is that the the way in which these experiments take place are not necessarily replicating the way that experiences in general life take place. So say trying to transmit information between people, it often happens at random in normal life. And it often has like an emotional charge to it. And there's some, you could say, reason for why this transmission of information is taking place. But then they try to test that in a different setting by your 
you're sitting in this room, other person sitting in that room, you're seeing something on a screen. Now show them what mm-hmm. they're seeing, what you're seeing on the screen. I can understand why um, a lot of people say in the scientific, I don't, I, I can't generalize a lot of people. I can understand why we see people dismiss all of this as just hooey, as nonsense, because it just sounds so convenient, doesn't it? Like, oh, it only happens at random. I yeah. see. Yeah, it happens when it's convenient for you. <laughs> but you can kind of go the other way and say, well, just because it's not happening when it's convenient for these tests doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist. But then that kind of thinking means that, you know, just because you can't... What's that thing you told me once about the unicorn? I'm trying to quote you here. The unicorn? Yeah. Oh, there's not a zebra near Kepler 16b? There you go. It, then, uh, yeah, maybe there really is. But... Yeah, Um doesn't sound plausible, right? Yes. And I also, one of the points I try to make in in regards to DMT and experiences of this kind are that there are so many non-drug beliefs and they also should be investigated, but it seems that people can have very intense and very real type experiences that are not necessarily proof of anything. Ghosts are my favorite because I've had, I know people who've had ghost experiences and they're not just like shadowy figures, but rather more complex. I've had them someone in your family happened? yeah in my family and and personally i've had a long time ago and but also throughout history when it comes to like little people of pixies and fairies when i said that in a video i think it sounded dismissive because those sound more fanciful and more like they're from fairy tales but they're legitimate i mean they take in, in terms of people experiencing these things they've taken place in england they've taken place in ireland they've taken place uh, native american tribes have talked about little people and things of this sort clearly there's some capacity even if it's not real to have significant experiences that can be similar between people. I think the biggest things that are hard to dismiss are basically what you were talking about for transmitting some kind of experience or knowledge between people, because it is hard to justify how you could do that otherwise. I think it's an area people would be unwise to commit to either point of view, just simply for the the sake of let's experiment further and see what the evidence shows. People actually get mad at me. I, I see often comments on YouTube, people get mad at me like, Adam, haven't you learned anything yet? Of course this is real. Yeah. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, you're hiding it from us. You know the truth. This is real. You're just, you're just trying to save face for, you know, uh, you're just trying to tell people what they want to hear just so you don't upset a certain group or whatever. But no, that's, that's not the case. Um, I think my stance is pretty clear. There, I lean towards these experiences having some real weight in reality because again what is reality like it is just so hard for us to define everything in a materialistic way like what do they call that reductionist Mm -hmm. um i know there are people who are reductionists and they believe that they can see the that they're getting the most accurate view of reality by simply reducing everything down to the most minute piece possible they just cut everything up and examine it like that i feel like that is an inadequate way to view our reality because reality is so much more than that and I also think that some beliefs are a little bit more potentially interesting or have a higher likelihood of being legitimate than others. And so not everything that falls within spirituality or religion necessarily has the same apparent likelihood of being real. So I can see some very clear human motives to create a system of heaven and hell and a personal God and somebody you can pray to and all that. Of course, there's human motives. Yeah. That's the most hilarious thing apart, like about religion. Yeah. Like, of course, you want to believe in heaven. You no human are what are we? We're like wired to survive. Everything that we do that releases dopamine in our brain is part of a survival mechanism. Like, when do you feel the best? Do you feel the best when you are procreating? Uh, 
You feel good when you eat food because that's going to benefit your survival, that your brain rewards you for this. So obviously people are going to lean towards beliefs, which mean they're going to live forever. Like death is such a taboo thing that everyone just sweeps under the rug. And most people would have a panic. There's actually a lot of people, I think, who would have a panic attack if they were forced to sit down and really think about their own death and really examine it. That's why when people find out they have terminal illness, they just... Yeah, they don't know what to do with themselves because death is just something they've never thought about before. You know, the point that I was getting there is that I can see the very clear human motives in that area. And then I try to examine the beliefs of other places and even my response to them, say, a Buddhist type belief that's more esoteric and it's not about a personal self. It's not about a personal God. It's not even about continuing reincarnation because the teaching is that the ultimate truth is that they're actually you don't exist at all, never have, and it's really kind of an illusion. And there's no real benefit that I can tell to be gained from sort of having that. I don't find that to be comforting. If I could convince myself that there was a personal God and I could pray to him every night, my wishes answered and I'd go to heaven when I die, I can see some really clear reasons to buy that. Whereas this other kind of perspective, it doesn't necessarily have more proof, but I think the tainting of the belief from human motives is potentially lower. So when people are having experiences on, say, psychedelics, where they come to the conclusion, not that God is real or something, but that they don't even exist and the self is an illusion, it's, well, that seems maybe more legitimate than some, some other beliefs. Of course, there is something to be said for simply integrating the idea that the self is an illusion in a purely secular way. I think it has a lot of a lot of benefits and is probably objectively true. So, I mean, that that's a whole nother discussion. What I did want to get into is mm -hmm. expanding outside of sort of the DMT entities. Another thing that people point to as potential evidence are cases where, say, on ayahuasca, there's a recurring mother ayahuasca experience or on salvia, there's lady salvia. And even there's some entities that occur on Datura and other uh, tropane alkaloid plants. And that seems quite interesting, uh, you know, how a drug reliably produces sort of a an entity experience in that way. And they're not even dissociated. It's not like with DMT where you totally leave your body and have some experience. But these are entities appearing in normal reality. And they're fairly similar between the people that have them. A lot of people don't. Like I think Mother Ayahuasca is overstated. But even if you have 10% of people who are reporting that, it's way more than LSD. So what are your thoughts on the South American idea that there are spirits within plants that are like communicating with people? Okay, okay. Um, before I get into this, I just want to respond to what you said about the self being an illusion. Uh, that's kind of why I've always been so fascinated with DMT, because unlike the religious beliefs where you believe that you have to be good to go to heaven, everyone knows this, I don't have to say it. Um, I find DMT so fascinating because to me, it feels like whatever happens there is the closest to what actually does happen, say, when you die. Um, when Say when you break through on DMT, you experience your own death. And what, whatever you are in that other dimension, wherever you go, even if it's just in your brain, when you're there, at least for me personally, I have no recollection of my life in this world. It's as if I wake up in that place, I open my eyes, I get up out of bed, and I'm going wow, that was a really interesting dream. And then I continue on as if my real life, this life, had never happened. 
it's it's not like I'm there thinking, oh, I miss my family. Um, this is really fun, but I wish I could bring them here with me on this ride. Like I'm not thinking anything like that. They don't exist. Uh, and I think that's just really fascinating to me that you lose touch with your real life when that happens. It feels like you're going through some type of a transition when you enter that place. You die and then you transition to that. Um, if anything, to me, that would be some kind of evidence as to what could, it's a potential as to what could happen if, say, consciousness is just something that we really don't understand. We don't know how it works. We don't understand how death works. That, to me, sounds more plausible, at least, than you're going to go to a heaven. Uh, that, that just doesn't make any sense. There, there's no way that you're going to retain your memories and retain who you are in some kind of an afterlife. And I'm not sure if what I'm saying is really comforting, because I'm still saying that you lose every, you know, every bit of information that makes you you. You lose your memories, you lose yourself, you lose it all. And I think that's definitely not the most comforting for people to hear. But what is comforting is that whenever I've had these experiences or when other people have had these experiences, it doesn't fucking matter. When you're there, none of this matters. Nothing. You're not missing it. Uh, and that kind of, to me, does sound like reincarnation in a way. I mean, babies aren't born missing. Well, I mean, we can't really talk to them, so we don't know. But we don't see young people growing up necessarily unhappy. We watch babies grow up smiling and happy. Imagine if you went life to life, say if reincarnation was something that existed, I'm really not sure about this, but if you went life to life remembering the last one, how fucking miserable would yeah. that be? We'd all be dead. We'd kill ourselves. We wouldn't want to go through that. That makes no sense. So it makes perfect sense to me if something like that exists, why the memory wipe happens. It's also, as humans, we tend to give so much weight and value on our lives. We, a lot of people really do think they're the center of the universe and they think that their experience is the most important experience that exists right now. Um, but what if, you know, that whole thought that we really are part of the same consciousness, we're all just different perspectives of it, then it really gives way to the idea that it's not the individual experience that matters at all. It's more so just the fact that there is experiences that there is something to be had. Um, because otherwise, what the fuck is life doing here? Yeah, I agree. There is something to be said for that kind of experience. And and because you can have experiences on DMT that are in many ways akin to experiences that some people have with meditation practices and things of that sort, It at, at the very least, it tells us something about the mind and it tells us something about the unreality of self as sort of this constant thing that you really should be identifying with with versus it being sort of a, an ephemeral thing. And you can even experience this like with ego death on other psychedelics. I mean, there's instances where you kind of forget everything that happened before. You don't know your name. You don't know what you do. You're just sort of experiencing life. And in that instance, you're basically the same as another person because you don't have any baggage, mm -hmm. you know, connected to your previous life. Well, you've got yeah. nothing that makes you an individual. Yeah. You've got no thoughts. <laughs> like what makes a person them? I mean, really, it's just their thoughts. It's the memories they've collected. Yeah. So getting into the plant entity thing, what is your, your take? On there being specific plant spirits? Well, I, I've never seen a mother ayahuasca, but I mean, that's not something that I really explored in too much depth. So I can't say. I've talked to a lot of people who have said they've never met mother ayahuasca. I talked to one girl uh, who had personally tried ayahuasca upwards of, she's probably done it at least 30 times, maybe more. And she never once met mother ayahuasca. So I feel like those have to do with culturally being culturally programmed. Like, didn't you tell me before that most of the people who do 
experience these spirits are the ones who they themselves grew up with that as part of their culture. Yes, there are differences. It does seem to be between people in South America using ayahuasca and what people experience elsewhere. So yeah, I do think there's a big cultural connection. So isn't that the same? Isn't that the same as people who take, say, psychedelics and claim they meet Buddha or Jesus? Because Buddha and Jesus are part of their personal experience versus them. It's mother ayahuasca and snakes that are part of their experience. It seems what I'm saying is that I feel like those experiences are influenced by your your own um, notions of reality going into it. Like have people tried ayahuasca who had never heard of mother ayahuasca and come out and said, I met mother ayahuasca. I mean, I'm sure it's happened because, hey, these substances sometimes really do feel like they're kind of showing you something or they're taking care of you in some way. So I can definitely see that. I can see someone interpreting being taken care of as being with their mother. Yeah, I don't personally buy into the plant spirit stuff. It just seems to be a very common talking point among people in that kind of psychedelic community. So even at psychedelic science and other events, you have people discussing this idea that there is a Gaia or something which is communicating through plants. And therefore, that's why people have plant entity experiences or something of that kind. What about acid then? What about LSD? I mean, I know it's only semi-synthetic, but does that mean you can't have a Gaia experience? through LSD because human intervention kind of made it so we could take it safely opposed to just eating a bunch of ergot and getting vasoconstriction and dying. Yeah, apparently. This is why people end up saying, you know, synthetics are bad. Because you can't have that. I've had that experience. I have met so-called entities on LSD. Have, Have you? No, I haven't. So as someone who has taken synthetic substances and had experiences that are similar to what people are saying are only unique to plants, which have a spirit, then what does that mean? Does that mean that Uh, somewhere along the line, a spirit said, hey, look at this acid. I'm going to be the acid spirit. Like, it just, it sounds silly to me. I'm kind of on board. Or it's a fake spirit. Yeah. Oh, oh, so the, yeah, yeah. Any, anything you have that happens to you on LSD, any enlightenment or any mother figure, it was fake because man made that one. I do not buy into this whole man-made substances are bad and natural substances are good because let's be real for a second. It's still a compound that is a part Mm -hmm. of this universe. Whether so a man in like intervention, man intervention changed a molecule so we could take it, it doesn't make a damn difference. Like everything is a part of this world. Um, and at the end of the day, they are molecules. Of course, there are people who, who go even further and they say that the earth is instructing, sort of guiding the hand of chemists when they make these drugs. And you hear that a lot with Albert Hoffman because of the time period surrounding World War II, that this was sort of a, this was a, a response to the crisis of the world. And that's why, you know, he had this, this idea to further pursue LSD, which obviously there's no evidence for. But even though he didn't know he was necessarily making a hallucinogenic substance, see, things like that I find interesting, though, because sometimes I felt in my life that I've been led to do certain things um, that at the time may have seemed meaningless, but turned out that through like one silly decision kind of changed the whole course of my life. And I guess I could interpret that as some kind of an outside force was moving me in that direction, but I I don't really know what to make of things like that. And if anything, some of these psychedelics have shown me that we may not even really understand the nature of time. Like we experience it in a linear way, right? But there might be another way to experience time that I could just cannot fathom or explain. 
Do you think a lot of people focus on DMT as a very unique substance for the peak experience that it provides? Do you think you can reach states of that kind with higher amounts of, of other psychedelics? Or is there just always a clear, distinct difference? No, no. For whatever reason, I don't know if it has to do with them mainly being like the serotogenic activity of them. I, I don't really know what the mechanics are of it. But I do know that, in my opinion, you can reach similar states on any of these substances that allow you to go deep enough. By deep enough, I mean the ones that when you take a high enough dose, you pass yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like they can all lead you to very similar states. At least that's what I felt in my experience. Um, I don't think there's really much different between taking a high dose of mushrooms and you know blacking out and that's pretty much the same type of blasting off as when you smoke DMT. DMT is just a, I don't know, a faster way to do it and a shorter lasting one. You would you could call it much more efficient. So now tell me about the pineal gland. Do you think it is the seat of the soul? No. I didn't think so. I just wanted to, to verify. But more seriously, uh, what is your thought on endogenous DMT? I, I don't think we necessarily, I don't think the soul makes my thought process moves away from there being an individual yeah. soul rather than we're just all connected in some way or other. I really don't know if we have an individual soul. I, that just does not make sense with what I've experienced. But in regards to the DMT that does exist in the body, do you think it has a role? I mean, a lot of people have clearly jumped onto it's doing something in the brain. Yeah, the, that there's a role of them in the human body. For example, people think that when you die, the pineal gland is releasing DMT and that sends you into a trip. And you don't feel the same way? That's that's what you're yeah. saying, right? No, no, I don't feel the same way at all. I don't I don't think that there would even be enough DMT in the even if the pineal gland can create DMT, I, I don't think it's enough to necessarily cause a trip. But what do I know? I, I mean, I can't say that for sure. Haven't there been studies that said the same thing? Yes, I, I think the recent presentation from David Nichols, which I recommend everybody check out from the breaking convention is a good overview of the situation. Basically, we know DMTs in the body. The hypothesis is that even if whether it's synthesized in the brain or it's synthesized in the lungs or somewhere else, that it could be in the brain and could accumulate in these synaptic vesicles and under moments yeah. of stress, it could be released. But it turns out there's really there's very, very weak evidence but for see, this. All of this comes from the starting point of you having some kind of uh, soul that needs to get out of the body and the DMT is, but the soul is riding out of the body, right? Like as if I'm walking around with a soul inside me. So obviously I don't believe this. If I don't believe we have a soul, I think that what this is doing is attaching some kind of something physical to the non-physical. I mean, when you die, whatever your consciousness is, ends. Why would you need the help of something physical like DMT to take your consciousness out? That's what death is. Goodbye, by consciousness. Like that's like saying if you have no DMT in your brain, you can't die because you need the DMT to exit the consciousness. Like it makes no sense to me. True. I've always found it a little bit amusing that the supposed gateway to the afterlife or whatever they think happens is taking place through serotonin 2A receptors. It's this awesome mixing of materialist brain science with some kind of spiritual belief, which, as you were saying, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because once your brain is no longer there then you would not be relying on serotonergic drugs to do something. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, the people who are coming up with these ideas, I don't know if they necessarily thought hard enough 
about all the different angles that you can take take on this. Yeah. I mean, on one level, they're saying they're an infinite being, but on the next level, they need DMT to become an infinite being. Like, you need that to exit. Like, what? There's also been, uh, including Nichols, pointing out how if your pineal gland is disrupted or um, no longer providing any functionality, you don't change. You know, he was he was saying, you know, you would expect if this was the case for people to no longer have like spiritual experiences or they would become like terrible people or something and, and nothing actually changes. It's fine. So, yeah, I think there's a overemphasis on the pineal gland, regardless there of is, the fact that, that the Egyptians and, and some Indian subcontinent people have pointed to the pineal as in some way important. It doesn't seem too likely, in my opinion. So I think we agree on that part. Well, maybe it's important while you're alive. It could be important for, well, it at least plays some role in, in melatonin. and Right. Maybe there's, maybe there's something in there that, um, I don't know, yeah, melatonin. Maybe it's it's something that's important for humans to feel connected. I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm just guessing here. But I, I just don't see how it, it would be important in death. I, I get the concept. Don't believe it. I'm happy people are disproving this. It's very common for, you know, this is kind of separating from drugs themselves, but it's very common for people in the psychedelic community to also have, in my opinion, more wacky, not just spiritual beliefs or something, but they're anti-Western medicine or they're anti-Christianity or they're anti-fluoride or vaccine right. or whatever. There's clearly a statistical correlation between how much you like LSD and how much you don't like vaccines. And I'm wondering uh, your, right. your thoughts on, on how these things go together, what your thoughts on Western medicine is. You know, is it all just big pharma poisoning us? I can understand where they're coming from. Um, because you have to understand when I'm talking to you now with my stance on these things, this has been like my heavy use when I was really exploring these uh, was years ago when I lived abroad. And if you were to talk to me while I was in the phase of taking psychedelics a lot, I'd probably have some very different answers than what I do now. It just always seems interesting when I notice how, because I talk about drugs, but I don't just talk about psychedelics, people will get introduced to the drug classroom with you know something about DMT or whatever, or a boga. And then they're suddenly encountering videos about SSRIs, and I get more negative responses for traditional Western medicine stuff than for anything else. I could be talking about methamphetamine, I could be talking about heroin, and they're like, oh yeah, that's all cool. And then I talk about an antidepressant, and all hell breaks loose. It's the worst thing you could ever imagine. It's all big pharma just, you know, ruining the world. These aren't even real diagnoses. I mean, once in a while, I get the people who say, schizophrenia is not real. I mean, it, it gets so far out there. Have you seen this kind of the presence of these beliefs among people who, who frequent your content? Oh, yeah. I mean, people are very open to psychedelics because of the perceived uh, healing potential, but then they're closed off to pharmaceuticals. And a lot of being closed off to pharmaceuticals, I mean, I, I can understand why. It's because look at the intentions of pharmaceutical companies. We all know that their intentions are to keep you on their product so that you mm -hmm. keep making them money and keep buying their product. Their intentions aren't to heal. So people get confused and they mix up the pharmaceutical company's intentions, intentions versus the actual drug, which are completely different. What they're doing is they're calling a drug evil or bad because it happens to be something that a pharmaceutical company uses to make money. I, I mean, no, no, they're two separate things. It doesn't necessarily mean that drug is bad because there's a group of people with bad intentions. There's no good or evil drugs. A lot of people seem to believe that there are, 
uh, people like to challenge these notions and they'll bring up like some really disgusting drugs. Like what about crocodile? Um, what do you mean there's no bad drugs? Have you ever heard of crocodile? Well, let's, let's rephrase that then. If all of these drugs were easy to acquire, things like crocodile wouldn't have to exist. I mean, just in the same time, there's no good or bad drugs. Just because a drug exists doesn't mean that humans should necessarily take it. And of course, when it comes to crocodile, it's actually an, an argument against that entire idea that some drugs are so dangerous, you would not want them on the market because it turns out the only reason that exists is because people weren't getting codeine and heroin. So people started making random acidic mixtures in a sink and made it a drug to inject to nobody's surprise that was not a good idea. So you ended up with that. I mean, this is, as I always try to point out, and this is sort of a more general anti-prohibition thing, is this is equivalent to not knowing, you know, going to an alcohol store and sometimes the alcohol has methanol in it and not just ethanol, or sometimes something that's supposed to be 8% alcohol is actually 50% alcohol. You know, this is the equivalent. And can you imagine if people were getting random batches of methanol or were getting, you know, the equivalent of vodka, even though they thought they were getting just beer and were drinking exactly. it accordingly? Exactly. These are drugs that are harmful that you would never take knowingly and again like you said it was only created because people had a lack of these other drugs um i think people just need to really review the actual evidence or whatever we have available on a drug as as it is before jumping the gun that it's necessarily bad i mean some of these antidepressants um really do save people and i'm sure there's a majority of people who would be better off without taking them it's it's really a touchy subject, but I, I just wish people would realize how hypocritical they are being because these same people who make these judgments often get mad that um, people don't see alcohol as a drug. They get mad that they're being hypocritical. There's, just, there's a lot of hypocrites in the drug world, isn't there? Oh, certainly. I think everybody, this is one thing I see with cannabis and psychedelics especially, is this very pro-cannabis people can be some of the most, the, the harshest towards other drugs, whether it's whether it's alcohol or anything else. It's just cannabis is the thing. It'll cure every disease. You know, it's, the, it's the best drug ever put on earth. Just because they like it. This is funny. I'm, uh, I was talking to a friend about cars because our car broke and we need to get another one. And he's pressuring me to get a specific car brand. And the only reason, I know the only reason he is, is because it's just the brand he likes. He's trying to tell me how it's the best brand out there. No other brand compares. They're underrated. And I'm like, okay. If you didn't own this car that's from this brand yourself, you would not feel this way. People who say all these things, it's just a crazy strong bias towards cannabis. And what I get, I get frustrated with them too because there are some people who don't agree with cannabis. For some people, cannabis just does not make them feel good or it doesn't make them feel half as good as people who are a fan of it. And when one of those individuals asks for help or, or asks them for advice and someone jumps in and says, hey, yeah, you should try cannabis – um, I'm thinking on like, say, a forum like Reddit, where someone's asking for like, what drug would you suggest uh, for this problem? And then they'll reply with, um, what will they say? They'll say, oh, no, cannabis doesn't agree with me. It gives me paranoia. There will always be someone jumping in being like, have you tried a high CBD strain? That's what it is, man. Oh, you don't like cannabis? You just haven't tried Indica yet. Oh, oh, you don't? Oh, yeah, we'll try sal or sativa. That'll answer it. Or high CBD. They always have an answer. Or there's always something that they can say. Um, to explain why you don't like it. Like they can't accept that some people just don't like getting high. It's hilarious to me. 
on a very practical level. We all have different neurotransmitters. Different drugs affect different people in different ways. It's a funny, it's a funny stigma that exists, or not stigma. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, the drug's reputation, you know, is definitely yeah. there. We go. It, it's got an interesting yeah. reputation. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of went on a tangent there. What was, <laughs> what, what were you saying about cannabis initially? I think I was just going on a tangent about how people are very pro psychedelic or pro cannabis as an example of people who stick up for their specific drug and do so at the expense of other substances. And I think this unfortunately leads to also misinformation. I think there are cases where psychedelic proponents really overstate or overmarket the the benefits or on the cannabis side, people are saying it can cure cancer just straight out any kind of cancer. And that's the reason it's not legal is because it would, you know, get rid of chemotherapy or something. So you see this kind of very widespread misinformation uh, that you don't see for, you know, nobody's sticking up for heroin and having a lobby based based around how awesome heroin is. But when it comes to certain drugs, you definitely do do see that. One of the things, probably because I have some personal experience with this, that does concern me about psychedelics is the low but clearly notable chance of encountering things like HPPD or dissociation and things of that sort after using them. And I think a lot of this can be controlled. I don't think it'll occur really at all for the most part in cases where somebody has a, a guide or it's being used therapeutically. So I don't think it is necessarily the drug itself, which is the primary factor, but rather there are some very stressful experiences that people put themselves through and you end up with something akin to a anxiety or PTSD type disorder that comes out of it. You know, what are your, your thoughts on that? I don't think enough people realize how psychedelics can impact their mental state or HPPD moving forward, um, but it seems to be a real concern. Uh, I'm not necessarily familiar with the, I am familiar with HPPD, but I'm not familiar with necessarily the occurrence of it or how often is it uh, not curable? What do you know? It normally is curable. Uh, and most people who encountered it, it goes away within six to 12 months. And there's obviously some kind of psychological connection because one of the most effective things is stress reduction can significantly reduce the symptoms. And again, this only applies to a minority of people, but I've had HPPD and it still exists to this day. And I've had dissociation stemming from, from psychedelics. So obviously my opinion is, is influenced by that. But I do think the ability for these things to occur says something really about what we were saying earlier, the importance of dose and setting, because I think there's something about spending too much time in a very stressful experience, a level of stress that people almost never will experience at other times in their life, and they have the added factor of a drug influencing their brain, it seems totally possible that you could then sort of break something in some way. I don't know, you know, how that influences whether people should use psychedelics. Um, I do think it has an impact on how they use. I just don't hear it talked about enough, especially because it, it really does seem to occur. It, it does. And not just HPPD, but um, people feeling broken after their trips, uh, it definitely occurs too. And I, I think I was saying earlier that sometimes people will have just, uh, maybe I was saying this earlier, I can't remember now, they'll have nothing but really good trips uh, until they just have that one really bad one. And then it's like none of those good ones even matter anymore because that one bad one just takes the cake and now they don't ever feel the same since. I know someone personally, um, Tom, he's got a YouTube channel. 
And he had a couple really terrifying trips in a row. He had a really terrifying ayahuasca experience. And then he had that really time, a really bad time with iboga, which you can actually see a video on, which wasn't even bad during. It was after the iboga experience where he, where he felt like he just wasn't the same again. He was extremely depressed and he was obsessed with, uh, what did he call it? Existential thoughts or existential depression, I think he called yeah. it. I can't really remember now. And yeah, that definitely doesn't get talked to, uh, about enough because it is a very real risk. But I feel like that is primarily a risk when people go overboard. If someone is going to use psychedelics safely, if they're going to listen to these very simple guidelines, like, you know, be careful with your dose. Don't jump the dose too soon. Don't be reckless. Uh, have benzos handy. Then I think you can really, you can heavily reduce the chance of those experiences going so dark and having that kind of damage. Uh, I think, say, if there was drug education was more normal and it was something that was taught versus people having to research this and find channels like ours on YouTube, then it would happen far less. I think another factor why it seems to happen, I don't know if it's frequently, but why it definitely is happening more frequent than it should is just because of the amount of people who just kind of glorify even psychedelics. Like in the drug world, there's a lot of people who glorify psychedelics and it makes it seem like they really can't do no harm. Like we were saying earlier, there's no such thing as a bad trip because you can learn from every trip. I've said this. I've said there's no such thing as a bad trip. I actually believe that looking back, you can kind of spin any experience around for a positive, but sometimes the only positive that you get to take from it is... I was an idiot. I shouldn't do that again. Yeah, learning to respect psychedelics is yeah, the big like, insight. Th that's the insight. Like, okay, that, that's kind of an, you don't need to go to hell and back and be raped by a hundred lizard men to realize that <laughs> you shouldn't have abused a substance. But hey, some people need to uh, learn by experience, right? Some people don't listen. And that's the only way they're going to learn. And I guess that's just the reality of a lot of the people who do take drugs. It's still not people with drug acceptance aren't in the majority. We're still the minority, and there's a lot of people who fall into the drug world um, for the very for very wrong reasons. Just because they're not in a good place in their life, they're looking for an escape. Uh, drugs are seen as bad and taboo. They want to do something bad. They want to feel good. There's just a lot of people who take drugs for the wrong reasons, and that's heavily just because of the stigma that's currently surrounding them. I think if drugs were more widespread, we would see people in general just respecting them more and understanding what, just how important it is to use them safely. Um, a lot of it just really comes from there being a lot of really shitty information getting spread around groups of friends or even just on the internet and forums where people just don't really understand the real risks that are involved. With LSD, it seems to be different than a lot of other psychedelics in terms of the way that people do dosing. It's not too common to go above, say, five grams of psilocybin mushrooms, or with almost any other psychedelic, people tend to stick in the common to strong dose range, but you have people that go for 800 micrograms or 1200 micrograms. Do you think there's a point at which it just doesn't make sense to continue pushing up the dose of LSD for some sort of personal record as though it's a game? Right. The people who are doing it for a personal record or as a game are the people who shouldn't be doing it. Like that, That's just stupid. I've read some people who, uh, who believe that there's a ceiling to the amount of effects you can get. Like once you hit a certain dose, it just doesn't matter anymore. Do you know what that dose is? Um, no, but I don't tend to see people talk about getting over five to 800 being, like once you get past that, it not being very different. You're, I mean, you've kind of just pushed your perception and confusion to the max. You can't really get further. 
So I, I would I would imagine around there. And classically, 300 to 500 is considered basically the max you would even want to do um, mm-hmm. in terms of if you have a, a specific benefit you know, you're not using it for creativity, which is lower or for enhancement, which is sometimes lower than that, but rather sort of these peak experiences. There's no evidence that you need a thousand micrograms to get a peak experience. And right. peak experiences are called peak for a reason. You can obtain them and you don't go past that. So yeah, but there's some sort of, uh, it might be a subset of the psychedelic community, but who kind of glamorize or glorify these these massive journeys of, you know, I took, you know, 15 grams of mushrooms or something. And- right. But I know what you're saying. Why do they why is it more common with LSD than with mushrooms? It is like it's not as common for someone to take even eight grams of mushrooms yeah, as sure. it is for someone to take like, yeah, five tabs or 500 micrograms. So why? It's a good question. Why do people tend to abuse LSD more than things like mushrooms? And it probably comes down to something just as simple. I'm sure there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is probably just the perceived um safety around the substance. People don't think that they are putting themselves in physical harm. And also just how easy it is to take it. You can't dismiss that. It is so easy just to throw five little pieces of paper in your mouth or dissolve them in water or to put five drops on a gummy bear. That does not take much effort at all. It's a lot harder to eat a shit ton of mushrooms. One of the things that kind of ties into this topic is Tim Scully, one of the well-known LSD chemists, he was saying fairly recently that it was pretty clear that going over 300 micrograms never really made too much sense. And at that point has a tendency to just increase the likelihood of hospitalization because people just freak out and they can't get controlled. So I think people really should start understanding that sticking with calm and strong dose ranges for every drug really does make, you know, the most sense, you know, just because you heard about somebody who they had this amazing experience on eight tabs, and you want to replicate that there's really no reason to believe that you need to use that much. So there's not there's not and you know what my this is this kind of just goes to show how wrong they are in my personal experience, at least my well, arguably my most enlightening experience was on a tab and a half. Maybe it was just a really strong tab. No, no, they weren't. They, they were not a strong tab. This was, they, if anything, they were very average. Like they weren't underdosed, I don't think. I think it was a genuine 150 to 160 uh, micrograms that I consumed. And people have to understand it's not really the drug itself that is going to cause you to have an enlightening experience. It's what you're bringing into the drug. Like what, like, who are you? What are you? What are you made of? What are your thoughts? Where are you in your, in the evolution of self that you're at this current moment? Um, what have you been studying recently? What is influencing your, you in your life? That is going to heavily determine what type of experience you're going to have on something like a psychedelic, but people confuse and like an enlightenment with a dose it has nothing to do with dose i mean a little bit to do with dose but it's definitely not all dose related like people tend to believe uh, i think that similar to what you're saying if you go on the high spectrum of these doses it's just you're really just enhancing your chance of causing some psychological damage you're like far greater than you are enhancing your chances of reaching an enlightened state or meeting entities or, you know, whatever it is that you're taking the dose to gain. I hope more people are educated about this. Um, I can understand just on an ego level why some people think it's like a game, like, let's see how high I can take this because it makes them feel good. Like, you know, it's just another way of one-upping the next guy. Like, oh, you did three tabs? Well, hey, man, I mean, three's intense, but wait till you try five. That's where it's at. Once you try five, then then you'll be on my level, bro. You'll know where I where I've been. 
it's like it's just another game for them but on a more practical level if you are looking like if you're someone listening to this podcast and you are looking for some type of enlightenment if that is your goal if you want a memorable life-changing experience i would personally suggest you look into buddhist theories first uh become well versed in meditation and not just meditation it means so many things i mean more start to realize the duality of your experience um, for me, once I started asking bigger questions and once I started to get acquainted with duality, that is when I got the most insight out of my trips, which had very little to do with dose. Uh, as I continue on this long tangent, in that same regard, I had friends uh, when I was in New Zealand who would take massive doses all the time and they'd always be perfectly fine and they'd see nothing but pretty colors and patterns and they just have a smiley, happy time. It really didn't matter for some people that I've seen what dose was. They never really got any insight out of it because, again, these substances are heavily dependent on your own mind and their mind just wasn't in the right place to get any insight. You also have had a fair amount of experience with MDMA. When it comes to sort of a general improvement in somebody's life, what do you think has a greater ability to provide that kind of benefit? A lot of people find, or I mean, a lot of people find on both sides that either one was sort of the most enlightening or encouraging experience that they've had. How do you feel those those drugs differ? Um, I think that the benefits that you can get from either of these substances, um, even though it's MDMA and it's not um, as reliant on your thought processes or on who you are, they really are correlated to the intentions. Why are you taking them? Um, it's really easy for a lot of people to take MDMA and just go to a party. They're not really getting any benefit at all from that experience except for the recreational value of having a fun night out. Uh, recreational value, if we're talking about that, then MDMA has far greater recreational value. Um, but if you're talking about benefits in terms of something long-term, um, which drug is going to help you, I don't know, live a better life, live a more accepting, happy life, really just depends on intention. And it depends on who you are going into it. Some people, just through the course of their life, may not have had the chance to experience a lot of love. They may have experienced a lot of rejection. Uh, they don't accept themselves for who they are. They feel embarrassed for their, for their existence. Someone like that who's never really felt love is going to benefit from MDMA because it's going to show them just how much love they are capable of feeling. I mean, chemically induced or not, it's still going to be a feeling that they had that they can remember. They're always going to remember um, how good they felt that one time, which for some of these people leads to some kind of an MDMA addiction. But if you're somebody who has had love in your life, who's experienced a very warm time on this planet, MDMA is really just going to be more of a fun ride for you. You're not going to learn much from it. Um, psychedelics are even harder to pinpoint because, again, what is your intention of taking it? What are your thoughts on the more atypical and in some ways unique psychedelics, unique in the sense of being different from the classical ones with the 2C series or the DOX series? Do you have a lot of experience with them? You know, are there benefits to exploring them? It's funny because all of these psychedelics like 2C, I believe 2CE is largely believed to be uh, one of the more deep of the 2C series. You can get the most introspection from that one, or it's one of the most introspective. 
um, for the DOX series. I can't remember. Is it DOM? I don't know that people tend to find as many differences between those in terms of there's differences for duration, but not necessarily in intensity, okay. but not necessarily like insight. So what, what I'm getting at is they all like they all can take you to such a similar place to, depending on how far you want to travel into, you know, inside your own consciousness, how, how much you want to unravel or how many more mysteries you want to learn that you'll never answer about this reality. Um, they all have a very similar potential. Uh, I don't necessarily think that there are really too many differences between all these different psychedelics once you go up in dose or once you have, uh, once you re- reach a certain level of experience. Um, do I see value in like some of the 2C drugs? For sure. For sure. I've tried uh, a few of the 2C series drugs and they're interesting. I mean, the value can just be, it's an interesting experience. Um, they are not going to, for most people, take you as deep as some of the traditional psychedelics because in order to go that deep, you have to take higher doses. I'm talking about 2CB specifically because I believe that's the most common uh, 2C series drug. And I find 2CB very interesting. Um, that one's great for like inter... Well, that one's great for sex. It's got some good uh, benefits also for helping you open and share your feelings and connect more to your own feelings. It's That can be a very emotional substance. Um, but in terms of like psychedelia, like going really deep, um, you'd have to take higher doses. But it's definitely capable of that. I think what I'm getting at is they, a lot of these drugs really do have... Uh, one thing in particular that they are the best at doing. They shine in one way over the other. And it just really depends on what, like if you see them all as tools, what is it that you want to get out of the experience and what what do you need to learn in life? And sometimes some of these drugs, uh, like even just something as basic as learning to be more open with your feelings, you might not even know that that's something that you could change or you could use to change in life before having the experience. So sometimes people just don't know what benefits they're after. But again, I'm looking at these from a purely like, how can it benefit your life perspective? And some people just take them for a good time. And what about the, you know, setting aside the, well, you can't really set it aside, but the, um, there are people who get interested in some of the more intense psychedelics, for example, Bromo Dragonfly, which comes with a lot of toxicity concerns. You know, do you think there's ever any role for things like that to be used? No. So if somebody has a gram laying around, they shouldn't start dabbling in Bromo Dragonfly? In Bromo Dragonfly. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, that seems reasonable. <laughs> I mean, I, I've just had, I've had a few people contact me who are actually, despite all the concerns, interested because of its long duration and which just seems odd no, to me because no, they should just ask themselves like like be honest with yourself buddy why do you want to take it some of these people just want to take it so they can say they tried it hey look at me i tried one of the most dangerous ones and i lived uh, everyone's gonna love to hear about my experience it's just for some kind of a sick social value that i cannot get on board with i'm sure people are gonna get mad that i'm saying that because i'm i'm sure there's someone out there who has genuinely convince themselves that the reason for taking it is, uh, you know, for some kind of personal growth or some kind of personal gain. I really don't want to pass uh, definitive judgment on people who I don't know or the reasons. Like, I don't want to generalize, but it's hard not to generalize when you're talking about a substance that just has such potential to damage someone. I mean, when you look at what else is available, why would you not just choose something safer? Like, I, what are your reasons for wanting to potentially kill yourself or trip for two days, go insane. Like, tell me a solid reason why you think that's a good idea. 
And I don't think there are any. Would you extend on a on a more serious note that to 25i? Because I've noticed Bromo Dragonfly is not defended too often, but a lot of people will really go against the criticism of 25i. And there, are, I do think there's a higher ability to use it in a reasonably safe way, but there's still w- way more toxicity concerns. What frightens me is that there, I believe there's one report of someone consuming two tabs. Presumably they were what? A thousand or twelve hundred micrograms, like one point two milligrams. Do you know this case that I'm talking about? And they yeah, uh, they died so. after just two. Um, from what I can tell, that the research is showing is that it's one of those substances. And these, I think, there's a lot of substances like this actually, where very it's very variable in terms of human sensitivity. Like some people are just way more sensitive to it than others, and it seems to have a high degree of that. Like you don't know if you're going to be someone who is completely fine on it, or if you're going to be the type of person who it affects negatively. Like I've read of people saying they took 10 milligrams and they lived, which to me sounds like a death wish, right? Oh, of course. But yeah, I don't understand those reports. But at the same time, I mean, hey, I guess he was okay. It just, there is too much of a risk involved. I mean, if it was properly studied, and if we knew more about it, and if we could genuinely figure out Um, what the safe dose was and if it could be reliably repeated (laughs) so we knew that people weren't going to you know we knew that uh, the whatever percent of people who were super sensitive to it still they would still be safe on that dose then my opinion would change but as of right now there's just too much potential uh, for danger for me to consider it like a viable option if you want to trip probably one of the biggest topics in the psychedelic space right now is microdosing have you had much experience with it do you think the benefits are real and actually capable of improving people's lives i've had a lot of experience with it i've read a lot about it i spent a long time reading about this one Um, my knowledge base may be a bit rusty because this was a couple of years ago But from what I can recall, uh, James Fodeman says that people gain the most benefits when they take uh, sub-perceptual doses below threshold, uh, meaning you're not supposed to feel a damn thing, correct? Yeah. In that regard, uh, really just sounds like placebo to me. I've tried that and I didn't feel anything. But hey, you can't say that it's not worthwhile just because me, one person is saying they didn't notice a benefit. I believe that there was some value in it at threshold doses. For example, for I'm very sensitive to uh, substances like LSD, like lysergamide. I can never say the word lysergamides. I've always been very sensitive to those. So for me, I can actually get effects from 15 micrograms. Um, my skin feels different. I notice it in my belly. Uh, my thoughts kind of start changing a little bit. Like I feel a change in perception on that low of a dose. And in that regard, that's when I could see a benefit if I was maybe writing, it might allow me to, you know, have more creative thoughts or look at things from different perspectives. So I can understand that, but not at doses that don't really have any effect. That's like telling people to take um, a milligram or a milligram or two, no, yeah, one milligram of dexedrine, just take one milligram of amphetamine, and it's going to help you focus. Like that just sounds a little wacky to me. Yeah, what is 
interesting with microdosing, and this is a totally speculative thing, is I do wonder if consistently affecting 5-HT2A could actually have some kind of persistent benefit for anxiety and depression. Because some people do report on the following days having a, a better mood as well. And the reason this comes to mind is because there's some connection between 2A and response to SSRIs, as well as other anxiolytics and antidepressants. So I, I, I wonder if actually there could be some benefits for mood, at least coming from that direction. Because according, according to Fadiman, it's very common to have the next day be also affected. Right. But Fadiman's doses, um, he called a microdose, like a dose that you can't perceive. He labeled that as 10 to 25, depending on the person. I think his doses are too high, considering I can definitely feel 15. So I, I would argue that a lot of people who think they're taking a, like a subperceptual dose during his study are actually getting effects. And I think the reason that it carries over, at least for me, um, and this may sound silly to some people, uh, some of the time, I've microdosed a lot. I tried for a period, I was doing it quite frequently. I tried various substances. I tried LSD. I tried mushrooms. I tried mescaline. I tried 2CB. Um, I think there's one more that I'm missing. Oh, I tried some research chemicals. I tried microdosing allylescaline. Yeah, that might be the whole list. Um, anyway, sometimes I would feel better the next day just because it feels good to be normal. Like the, the sub-perceptual dose or whatever, the threshold dose, even though I was getting some like creative thoughts, I... It was making me feel kind of uncomfortable. I don't personally find threshold psychedelic doses comfortable, at least not for things like LSD. I feel like I get a lot of the negative effects um, without any positives. For example, my skin feels weird and it gives me a stomach ache, okay? That's not what I would consider a positive effect. I mean, sure, my thoughts might be altered in a way that some people might perceive as good. I do find that nature looks prettier on very low doses, like plants look cool, um, but it's not worth it. Because my stomach's upset all day, I don't have an appetite, I feel kind of lethargic, and my body feels just fucking weird. So the next day, when I feel normal again, it's like, oh, thank goodness I'm normal. I feel great now. Yeah, I think it's an interesting area to research. What has somewhat concerned and also not surprised me is the amount of media attention that's being given to microdosing. I swear every major major website has been covering it as, you know, the, the newest thing in Silicon Valley is to have I your, saw that one. Yeah, have your LSD for, you know, in place of coffee, which is, I think, putting things a little too far ahead of where they are. Especially because for all we know, there's some sort of negative effect. It's not totally clear that there's not. We know basically the safety of LSD if you're taking it once a week or definitely less, but three times a week or so. Who knows? Are there, I know you haven't experienced all the classes of drugs, but are there ones you truly would not ever touch? You know, not necessarily just ones you're not super interested in, but are there ones you think yourself and other people should truly avoid? Yes, I think people should avoid really high doses of LSD. <laughs> I'm making a joke, but in the wrong sentence setting, I just want to get that out there. We've talked a lot about it, I know, but that should be on everyone's list. Avoid high doses. Especially at night. At alone or alone. Your parents' house. Yeah. 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 Or with the wrong people. So just to get that out of the way. Um, but in terms of actual substances, just to avoid altogether, I would never try a deliriant, for example. I just don't, again, like when you try any drug, you have to weigh like, are the risks worth the reward? I don't see the reward. Actually, I don't see any reward 
in terms of those. I would never try delirium. Like I never try detura. What's the other common one? I'd never try high doses of... Diphenhydramine? Exactly. I was just going to say Benadryl. There's just really no reward there. That sounds like it's... So you're not trying to see spiders and ghost people? No. I mean, I can can dream. I've seen scary shit in my dreams. Why should I put my sanity on the line for something like that? I don't know. That's probably it though. I would never try that class for any reason, unless there's something that I just am missing right now. Um, clearly, I'd never try, like we already talked about this crocodile, tro- crocodile. I'd never try anything like that. Uh, for me, I draw the line when it becomes dangerous. Uh, when I first started taking psychedelics, uh, I made a rule with myself that I was never going to take a substance that had a high probability um, that I would hurt myself or that I could die from it. Which seems fairly reasonable. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's actually largely why I stuck to things like LSD or um, DMT in the beginning, or even mushrooms, is because I knew that I couldn't hurt myself on it. How has that impacted your view on research chemicals, especially the ones that seem more likely to be safe, like 1PLSD or ALAD or 4-ACO-DMT? I approach them with caution, but I I definitely look at the anecdotal research that's out there thoroughly. Before trying uh, something like ETHLAD, I read every single report or like experience report I could find on the internet. Like I scoured the internet. I read everything. So for research chemicals, I will just make sure I'm as educated as humanly possible before trying one. And I always, always, always would start with a threshold dose. I'm probably more cautious than people even imagine. <laughs> well, it makes sense. And, and I, I tend to do a, a similar thing. You tried at least once, I believe, Amanita muscaria. I haven't actually seen your response to it. What did you find it did? Was it interesting? No, it just, uh, maybe what I had just wasn't very potent. I'll put that out there. Um, I tried it in various doses and it just made me feel I want to say kind of dreamy, like a little floaty, I guess. Just nothing beneficial came out of it. And nauseous. I mean, sometimes when you get nauseous from a drug, the nausea just kind of overpowers any other positive effect and and you just kind of get stuck on how shitty your body feels. So no Alice in Wonderland hallucination? No, but I I can see in higher doses because I did feel dreamy on it. And and speaking of dreamy, I, I had some really bizarre dreams so if that's any, any indication of its potential, I can see in higher doses uh, people getting really messed up on it. But I, that's, it just didn't seem like it had any recreational value or any therapeutic value to me. And that's kind of what I look for in a substance therapeutic value or recreational value. And just, yeah, there really wasn't any. Yeah, it's interesting that the only thing that tends to intrigue me about Amnia muscaria is, well, first are the effects because they have a a higher likelihood of causing effects that are similar to Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which can occur from a variety of brain disorders with macropsia and micropsia for feeling big and everything else. Exactly. Like when you look down, you feel like a giant, but when you look up, you feel small. Yeah. And so that's interesting. And also because it kind of fits into this area where it seems as though GABA-related drugs are in some way capable of causing hallucinatory experiences. And you have a muscimol, which works at GABA-A and also is one of the few known agonists for GABA-RO, GABA-A-RO, which is not a very well-investigated receptor. But then you also have Zolpidem, which is Ambien yeah. or Zopiclone, yeah. Lunesta. And people have these sort of, they're more deliriant in their way I've, of- I've been there. I've actually experienced uh, delirium from a GABA substance, uh, alcohol, actually, ethanol.
Tylenol um, in high doses. I, my brain chemistry is very bizarre. I actually, even though I went through a period of too much drinking, I am the kind of person who just should not drink. Uh, I'm very sensitive to it and sensitive in a weird way. I've experienced full-on delirium, like hallucinations on high doses of alcohol, which I plan to make a video about, so I don't want to go too much detail <laughs> in this podcast. But um, yeah, I've seen things that weren't there. I've talked to people that didn't exist. Like, I mean, full hallucinations. You currently have used like amphetamine for productivity. Um, what's your stance on that? And also, what's your stance on ADHD in general? Um, because that's one of the more that's one of the conditions that people really often try to claim is not real. I'm not sure. Like, I've, I've thought about this a lot. And I've done a lot of research on ADHD, because I myself have been diagnosed as having ADHD. And I, I used to always take the stance um, that I didn't think it was real, that I didn't think it was like an actual thing, um, until I finally gave some of the medication a try. And I largely felt, well, on the medication, how I believe normal people feel. Um, what I can relate to is the constant searching for uh, dopamine release, which can also just be a byproduct or a side effect of the way a lot of us live. We're constantly, we have like 100 tabs open, we're constantly checking messages. And you know, every time, what's it called? Um, instant gratification. It's every time you receive like a new message, it gives you a little dopamine release. So people get addicted to the, you know, constantly seeking out those little surges of dopamine. One of the hypotheses I think about ADHD is that they, if you have that uh, condition, your brain just doesn't produce enough dopamine, correct? Yeah, the idea is basically that you end up with task switching. So you can't stay on and focus on a thing because your dopaminergic activity, which would get you to actually focus and be interested in the activity is, is just not sufficient. So that's why it occurs in like schools and stuff. Right. So I can, I can get on board with that. Because after trying uh, like uh, an amphetamine, which is prescribed to treat ADHD, all of a sudden, I didn't want to switch tasks. And in my personal experience, I didn't really get any kind of a surge, like a dopamine rush from like getting messages or clicking through tabs. It was more so for me, I felt helpless. Like I wanted to work. I would try to work and I'd just be so distracted by other things. I'd go and do something else and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go chat with this person on Facebook or I'm going to call this person or text this person or watch this movie for like 10 minutes and then I'm going to get to work. That's it. And then those 10 minutes would be up and then I'd find something else. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this for just 10 minutes. Then at this time for real, I'm going to get to work. And I was going through this cycle for years and years of constantly procrastinating everything. And yeah, at the expense of a lot of projects that should have got done, my own productivity or my own success. Um, so the, the drugs going on them or trying them helped me greatly. But also what helped was just learning discipline. Like simply put, I just did not have enough discipline in my life. So being more disciplined is arguably just as important, but I, I do see benefit in the substances. Where I uh, tend to differ from say what a doctor would prescribe is I would never take uh, ADHD medication every single day. I think that's stupid. I think even if you do have ADHD, there's absolutely no reason why you have to take it every single day. Because at that point, I feel like just the harm outweighs the potential positives for the good. Because you don't want to be so dependent on it that your brain can't produce dopamine, like, period, at all anymore. So I found the most benefit personally um, from those medications when taking them anywhere from three to six times a month, six being the max. So basically just taking it once a week 
and experiencing just one really awesome productive day um, that week. And for forever, whatever reason, because I also have learned to discipline myself now over the years of dealing with having these issues for so long, it has resulted in definitely my productivity being enhanced. I feel more motivated for sure. But yeah, at the same time, I would I would never want to be on it every single day. The For me personally, the, the, the side effects are too intense. I feel a pretty nasty crash from them. Um, I have no appetite, not even just for the day, for the whole next day or half the next day, I don't really want to eat. And I imagine that if I were to take them every day, I would desensitize, like I know I would desensitize to the effects and I'd be able to eat a lot better. I'd still have some appetite suppression, but I would get used to it. But I kind of like keeping my body in the state where I've never adapted to it because, you know, I don't have a tolerance, so I don't have to raise the dose. The same dose that I started with is still having just the same effect as um, the first time I tried it. Um, I don't like how people in the psychedelic community shit on Adderall or Dexedrine or Vyvanse. Um, They tend to demonize them, but I, I don't think that's the right way to go. I personally do find them very helpful, but as with every drug in moderation. I don't think they're useful as an everyday treatment. Yeah, I do think there's something to be said for using it when it's actually needed. In the same way, you also see this for, say, benzodiazepines. There's a big difference between being prescribed for anxiety for every day versus when you're having a stressful day um, due to anxiety, taking it. And I think there are benefits in, in at least some cases. But people get addicted. That's the problem, though. People get they take it and then... And it's easy to get addicted when you have a doctor telling you that you should take it this much. Like, can you blame them? We're taught to trust authority. So we've got these doc. I think the doctors are just giving some really shitty advice. Luckily for me, I already had a lot of drug knowledge when I when I first tried the medication. Um, I knew that the doctors were not going. I mean, maybe for some people it's beneficial to take it daily, but I knew for me and my personality type. Uh, it was not going to benefit me to take daily. And that it could also vary between what you're actually doing. I mean, if you're if you're having trouble focusing from ADHD and you do have school like every day, then it may be different than having days where work is less significant than usual or, or more significant. So yeah, I do think tailoring, not just telling everybody, do it every day and then we'll adjust the dose and keep it up. No, definitely. The other thing I wanted to say was exactly because things like uh, what I wanted to say was anxiety, you know, for benzodiazepines or ADHD. It's not like you're going to die from your ADHD. I mean, I can't generalize. Maybe you're some kind of special case, but no one's dying from not being able to focus. You, I mean, you might be failing at school or at work, but it's not like a deathly thing. There's no reason why you absolutely would have to take it. I think it just comes down to addiction at that point and people just being totally dependent on it. Another drug some people use for productivity, and it's been kind of an, a, an interesting recommendation I've seen online, is Kratom. Uh, it's not functioning in a way that you would typically associate with stimulant-like productivity benefits, but has has your experience been that it's useful for productivity? Uh, yeah, I've, I've spoken before um, in Kratom videos I've made about uh, Kratom talking about how I found it was beneficial for productivity, similar to how um, something like Adderall is beneficial to productivity, um, but in a very different way, yes. I do think that depending on dose, like as long as you're not taking uh, a dose that makes you sedated and you know sleepy, then I find it to be awesome. I think it's great. I definitely don't think it is as effective, at least not for me personally. It is definitely not as effective as something like amphetamine. But it also doesn't carry the same uh, type of side effects. 
like when it wears off, I don't feel low. I, I don't feel depressed in the same way. So I, I do see a lot of benefit. And I actually do take uh, Kratom as well uh, during the week. Also, Kratom is fantastic, totally off topic, but for pain. I recently really hurt my back. So unfortunately, I have been taking a lot more Kratom than I have in the past because I can't even sit down right now without pain. Like I really hurt my back and that shit is awesome for pain. Have you ever really ventured into nootropics? Yes, I have. I've got a lot of experience with just one of them, though, just um, uh, Prazatam, just the classic. Uh, also mixing Prazatam with different substances. I tried that for a bit, too. Um, and I've tried uh, Phenobut, which is kind of arguably a nootropic. Some people claim it is. I don't personally think it is. What did you find from Prazatam? Interesting, actually. I found that Prazatam, I still use it. Um, so this is kind of my reality now. I kind of switch between, uh, like, I'll have the one, uh, say, ADHD medication day per week, and then I'll do, like, a Kratom day. Obviously, now there's more Kratom days just because of the pain, but when I'm not taking it for pain, I will have, like, a couple Kratom days a week, and then I'll have a couple days where I'll just take something like Prazatam mixed with coffee. I find Prazatam with coffee to be awesome. The Prazatam somehow enhances... Um, any kind of focus effects from coffee, which I find are very slight. Coffee doesn't really give me much. But with the Prazatam, I think it's a really good combo. Prazatam isn't like I'm sitting there and I'm feeling, say, as amphetamine, where, oh my God, I'm so focused. Like I have laser focus. I just, I, I need to do something. I, I need to get work done or else, like, for example, I'm getting ahead of myself. If I'm on amphetamine, I feel laser focus. Like I, if I'm not working, I feel depressed. I get dysphoria. I need to work to feel good. It's really, it's a really cool effect that I get, but um, it can be a little overwhelming and it's definitely not a state I'd want to be in all the time. So kind of going all over the place here, but I feel no addiction to amphetamine. Just to kind of end this myth that everyone who takes it gets addicted, none, zero. I've never craved amphetamine. In fact, I need to recover after taking it. I take recovery days because I find it very draining. Um, but things like parazetam are so subtle, I don't even really notice it. But at the end of the day, I find that I focus better. I got more work done that day. I was less distracted. Um, I actually found more, I got more out of parazetam than I got out of modafinil, which most people find to be much more potent. What about phenobut? That used to be one of my go-to drugs and I haven't used it as much, but how has your experience been? Very... I don't know what's up with my brain chemistry. My experience has been different. So I don't want to say that this experience um, it, it speaks for many people out there. Mine has been unique in that every time I take Phenobut, I get tired. It didn't matter if I took uh, 250 milligrams. Um, I tried the, the highest dose I've currently tried of Phenobut was 1.7 grams. And every time I tried it around the two or three hour mark, I feel like I just have to close my eyes and fall asleep. I'm intending to do a video on Phenobut soon um, just to go over it because it is a very popular substance. And yeah, I think I find it interesting. I do find that it makes me uh, more talkative for sure, but only in higher doses. For me, lower doses do nothing. Once I hit about a gram, I, I can notice a slight boost in sociability. One of the areas that is usually overlapping with psychedelics are dissociatives, but you haven't really used them, as far as I know. Is there a particular reason? Are you planning on experimenting with them at some point? Sure. I, I mean, I'm not going to rule it out. I might try them someday. I'm not, I'm not currently interested at all. It, just from what I've read, the experience doesn't sound interesting to me, but I I know from experience not to rule something out just because of my perception 
of other people's subjective effects. Uh, it's just they never sparked my interest. The thought of being disassociated from my body, just you know what the name stands for, that just never sounded attractive to me. I haven't used them extensively, and I've only used one, and that was 3-MeO-PCP. The one thing I did find interesting is that you can, depending on the dose, you can kind of see this case where certain mental faculties are just being shut down, and but you're still there. Right. So, you know, whether it's your ability to just hold a conversation goes away, but also specific things like there was one time when I couldn't wrap my head around time like a, a calendar date. Like I could picture like Monday comes after Sunday. I can't figure out what coming after another day means. But that happens on psychedelics too. It's a very similar effect. It's sort of a, an interesting thing. And they're way less typically uh, likely to have any kind of significant anxiety and stuff than psychedelics. I don't have anything against them. Like I, I'm not like on a vendetta again. I don't think they're bad or good. They're, you know, same as I think of any drug, just how you use it, right? But yeah, it's just not something that interested me. But sometimes when I do read about them, like hearing your experience right now makes me go, yeah, I'll, I'll probably just so I have that experience, um, give it a try. It sounds interesting. Um, I'm just kind of not really, I've already got enough substances that I take that <laughs> right now I'm yeah. not really exploring at the moment. And by substance that I take, I mean, just my prescription medication and uh, the Kratom for pain and things like prazotam, to me, that is more than enough at the moment. So you're not anti-DXM? No, no. I talked about this in my Everything Wrong with Psych yeah. Substance video. Definitely not. One of the last topics I wanted to discuss, you've done some more philosophy type stuff on SWIM, and we never really talked about what SWIM is. Could you just go into what the other channel is is meant to be about? Right. Well, the name um, probably sounds funny. It's not about swimming. Uh, SWIM is kind of a joke because... People used to go to drug forums and ask for drug advice or explain drug experiences, and they would always refer to themselves as SWIM, which stands for someone who isn't me. Um, so I thought it would just be a funny name for the channel, but mine is supposed to be someone who is me, which it's, it's silly, but people often message me saying, oh, are you the guy from this uh, this post? I read something about mescaline the other day. Someone named SWIM tried oh, it. Was that you? And I just laugh because... It's absolutely hilarious people think that. Um, so yeah, the channel is just someone who is me. And I thought it was fitting because it's supposed to be a channel that's just about me. It's supposed to be my personal channel where I just talk about whatever I want to talk about, um, which happened to be philosophy a lot in the beginning because that was where my mind was. Uh, well, my mind's always interested in that. But at that time, I was researching it a lot more than I currently am. Um, but yeah, it, it's really just my own personal channel where I like to tell stories about my life that have maybe nothing to do with drugs. Do you have any daily philosophy or meditation practice that influences your life? Um, no, no, I don't follow anything. I mean, I, I've read a lot of Buddhism. I, I've read up on uh, Hindu beliefs before as well. I, well, by Buddhism, I mean, mainly just Alan Watts work, like Zen Buddhism. Um, I've read a little bit about more traditional Buddhism, but not that much. Uh, what else? What else? Obviously, I know a lot about Christianity. When I was a kid, I was forced to go to church, so that turned me off of that very early. Uh, but as for anything that I specifically believe in, uh, I try to just take, this might sound arrogant, but I, I try to take bits from different um, sources and just build my own philosophy or ideas as to what's going on here. I I don't think anyone necessarily really 
can say that they definitively know. So I have a tough time necessarily following a belief system that may claim to have an answer because I just, I don't really, from what I've seen, there really are no specific answers. That's just my opinion, though. The last thing I wanted to touch on, because it's not, you're more focused on education and harm reduction, but policy, now that we're seeing so many changes in Canada and the US when it comes to cannabis and other things, what would the ideal drug policy be in your world? In my world, the ideal drug policy is, well, it would start with proper education on drugs. Uh, It would be a normal thing that's talked about. We would stop rejecting the fact that humans have always used drugs as far as we're concerned. They're dated back, like so far back. Um, How long ago have they found ayahuasca? Was it like 5,000 years, 2,000 years? I can't remember. No, it's only been a few hundred. No, they found DMT preparations in burial sites. They found like pottery. They found pottery. They, you mean they, they found no like DMT in there? No, what they did find evidence for were using snuffs thousands of years ago. Right. Snuffs. Ayahuasca, we just don't know when it... Sorry, I don't mean ayahuasca. I mean like just some kind of psychedelic plant. Yeah, so that that's fair. Thousands. Thousands. Okay. What about alcohol? Do you know offhand? Oh, that's more in the like 8,000, 10,000 year range. Okay. So would it be safe to say that humans, as far as we know, have been using some kind of substance to alter their consciousness on a consistent basis? Yeah. Right. So why do we pretend that it's bad? Well, why are we raised to believe that wanting to experience something other than the sober life is something to feel guilty about is is something to necessarily reject or look down on those who do it i my ideal world is one where we accept that these substances are a part of our life we don't delegate some as good and some as evil for example the way we see alcohol um and it's one where people can freely choose what they want to put into their own bodies i mean is this my body if it is my body then why can't I choose what to do with it? Why are you going to throw me in a cage because I happen to disagree with your thoughts on the substance being good versus you think it's harmful? I mean, I just, I don't understand the logic of controlling someone else's choices. Uh, Easy example is anyone can go to the store and buy a knife. I'm going to use that knife to go home and cut my vegetables. We don't restrict sales of knives because people have been stabbed to death, do we? So why are you going to tell me that you can trust me with a knife, which is a much more dangerous weapon, but you can't trust me uh, to make my own choices on what I want to do with my consciousness and my body and my brain when it comes to something that gives maybe pleasure? I mean, I can buy bleach, I can drink that, I can kill myself. There's many ways that I could hurt myself. So the, the notion that drugs are restricted because our government cares and they're trying to take care of us is just absolute bullshit. So I I think that people are starting to wake up to this. I really do. And I hope that it happens soon. Um, And I hope that people start to realize that they have the power to make changes, um, very big changes in the way that other humans uh, see these substances. For example, cannabis. If it wasn't for all these people, Um, openly using cannabis, even though it was illegal. If it wasn't for cannabis being seen uh, in the media, in movies, it just slowly became a very socially acceptable thing to do. And you can bet your ass that it was heavily because of how people stopped, you know, in general, like how the public stopped demonizing cannabis. That is what led to it now becoming legal. So I think if more people change their minds on more drugs, uh, we can slowly just change the way that things are currently set up because the 
at, at this point, everything's really fucked up. You can become imprisoned because you wanted to make a choice with your own body. I don't know how that sounds right to anyone. I agree. I think one of the things you were touching on, which really is true, is one of the biggest impediments to changing this in a positive way is that we have so few good examples of somebody who used cocaine or used methamphetamine or some other traditionally so-called addictive substance and was fine. Almost everybody that people think of as a user of those things is totally negative. Whereas for cannabis, it's definitely not that way. And I think a big part of that is just people are scared to come out of their drug using closet and let people know because it can have impacts on your work environment. It could have impacts on your ability to pursue other job opportunities in the future and just the way that people view you. But keeping that a secret really impacts the way that people view drugs. And suddenly heroin is is equated with being homeless on the street and stealing from your family to support your habit. And luckily, cannabis has been sort of socially acceptable for a while to the extent that people feel as though they can say, hey, I use cannabis and there's no issue. Right. Well, it's the stigma. The, the damage is all coming from the stigma, which which affects how people are perceived to do these substances. That, that's why that's what has to change. Uh, I'm glad we're doing this. We're talking because just talking about this stuff with you is helping me um, come up with some videos that I need to start making. I want to focus more on things that help to destroy the stigma, which is kind of like an overarching effect of everything I do. It's kind of like just integrated into there. Um, sometimes just making a video that's like, this is how to destroy the stigma is going to be largely ineffective. <laughs> it's kind of an indirect effect. Um, so I don't know what I'm trying to say, but yeah, a lot of these problems really, like if you look at the root cause of this issue, um, is what you're saying. It's people are afraid to come out of the closet because if more people started talking about their use, I bet there's so many more people that use these things, uh, these substances than a lot of, or even me or you, um, know about. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Yeah, I think that's a, a really big factor on kind of what you're bringing up just to truly wrap this up. What are some of the goals that you have for psych substance? You know, like, where do you see it, it going? Because I've noticed at least as an outside observer that the channel has evolved progressively in the direction of education and harm reduction. Where do you th see things going? It still has to be entertaining, though. It's a tough, it's, sometimes it's tough. I find the balance Speaking honestly, sometimes it's difficult to maintain the harm reduction educational content with the entertainment because the type of people that um, I'm targeting to, you know, to teach them, like obviously I, I'm trying to make videos that a broad range of people are going to enjoy and some sex are going to, sex of people are going to enjoy some videos or appreciate some videos more so than others. But it, it can be tough because I know that I... Like, I want to make entertaining videos. I want them to be entertaining and educational. So the balance is something that I'm constantly working on. Sometimes I go too far into just education versus entertainment. And in the past, I've gone too far in the <laughs> entertainment aspect. As for the future of the channel, I really want to start uh, covering... I have a list of some news stories. I want to start, like, a news report section where I go over what's new in, like, the drug world news, um, like policy changes or... Uh, new studies that are being performed. Pardon me, I'm hiccuping. Uh, for example, I've done one months ago on ketamine, a ketamine study. So I want to branch off and start doing more like news report stuff. I find it interesting and I want to give my opinion on that. Uh, other things that I'm moving more towards are just helpful. I want to create some more helpful guides 
for different substances that are aimed at harm reduction um, that people can follow if they choose to do something so they don't, you know, hurt themselves. Um, but I think we've talked about a lot of the stuff uh, in this podcast that, that I want to focus on. Uh, one of the big things really is just demystifying psychedelics and explaining to people, showing them in a way that they can understand uh, why it's important to be safe with psychedelics. Especially that's more targeted at people in the psychedelic community because I do feel that people do get a little out of hand uh, with talking about their benefits and they really don't talk about the risks as much as they should because the risks are real. We both know that. So I highly doubt that anybody is not familiar enough to, to find you. But for uh, for those, you know, three people who are not... <laughs> Stop flattering me. Seth, cut it out. There's only hundreds of thousands of people watching. So, you know, I think most people know. But for those few people, uh, where can they find your channel? And um, Well, you can just go to YouTube. It's Psyched Substance. If you type that in, you'll find my channel. My personal channel is just called Swim. You should find it that way. I need to make more videos on Swim, working on that right now. Uh, as for social media, we have a Facebook page. Uh, but really, I'm the most active on the Psych Substance YouTube channel. Um, yeah, I think that's really about it. And if you support the YouTube channel, uh, my channel is fully funded via Patreon. As I can see, a lot of people on YouTube are now doing ever since they started with these new uh, guidelines, or what do you call it, the new algorithms that have implemented. Now, I've seen channels that aren't even controversial saying that they need Patreon just to survive. So... If anyone watching appreciates what I do on YouTube, check out our Patreon, which is just the amount of support I've received on Patreon has been absolutely mind-blowing and humbling beyond I can really even put into words. I never thought that my stuff would grow that far. I feel like now it's cliche. I always say that, but I don't know what else to say. Just saying thank you to everyone who's watching who does support my stuff. I appreciate all you guys. And with all of your help, like my stuff would be useless. Nothing I've talked about would really have any value unless people watched it. So just like to say thank you to everyone who's watching or listening. Yeah, just as sort of a, a quick addition to that, I really think we're in a moment where we could finally see the way that content is funded changed for the better with donations. If everybody got into the habit of if you're really regularly consuming some kind of media, whether it's a website, or it is a YouTube channel or a podcast and giving just a dollar, I mean, even just a dollar, if it has you. thousands of viewers, yes. that's enough to be funded. And it completely separates you from this weird, unreliable advertising business. And I think it's been great to see Patreon get the sort of community that it has. Because And I've started going through and for anybody that I regularly use or or, or pay attention to, I just have gone through and tried to, to support because it really, I think if everybody got on board with that, you're talking about a monthly expenditure and some people can't, you know, do this, but $10 would give you enough money per month to spread to the main people you you watch or listen to in many cases. I just think people should think about trying to move in that direction because advertising is is way too problematic and it's it's ruined a lot of right. channels and a lot of efforts because one day it may no longer be there, whereas the chance of losing 3,000 supporters... Well, you, you'll lose them slowly. You're not going to lose them all in a day. So you have you have time to gain True, yeah. <laughs> when, some, when you lose some. Um, in that same light, I totally agree with you. I support people I watch. For example, I am pledging to you Seth. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And anyone watching this, I know that Seth has never, ever 
put ads on his videos. And I know that means something to some people. Some people can respect that. So if you do support the drug classroom, I would definitely say that you follow in my footsteps and pledge to Seth as well. It will help him tremendously with the growth of his channel. Uh, I think a common argument that I see is people, I've seen this on my own content, people sometimes say like, well, why should I pledge to this guy? Well, like, what's, what's the point in regards to like the work I do? Um, they don't see the value. They don't understand how much goes into my content. They don't realize that this is my full-time thing. And as with Seth, this is Seth's full-time job. Basically, this is what we do. We pour hours and hours into this stuff. Seth and I both pour well more than the average working week into our work. With research and everything, it's well more than 40 hours a week into this. So I'm happy as well that things are moving to towards people supporting what they care about that and I, I actually admire you Seth your resolve because for anyone who doesn't know Seth has been doing this for just as long as I have and he has not seen the same kind of monetary growth um, as I've seen like I'm easily able to support myself I'm at the point uh, just on Patreon where I, I don't I don't need it to grow any bigger as long as it just stays like if I can keep that much on Patreon I'm already at more than enough which is just it's incredible to be at that point and I personally, I'm probably giving Seth such a huge shout out because I greatly respect the work that he does. And he's done some great things. And I think he deserves a lot more people pledging to him. Anyway, before I rant forever, I, I actually have a dance class to go to. Imagine that. Well, it was great having you on and, and thanks for accepting the invitation. I'll put obviously all the links to your very obscure, hard to find channel in the description and uh, hope you have a fun time at the dance class. I'm, I'm the, actually the worst person there. I, I literally, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm the worst dancer. I hate it when they give me a new partner. Got to try some microdosing with it. You know what, tonight, that's it, microdose. Anyway, thank you for having me on, Seth. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed chatting. Um, yeah, we should do this again. Great. Sounds good. Talk to you later. All right, take care.